Hi folks, this is Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is April the 18th, 2014. This is episode 1337 of the Survival Podcast. And it's Friday, Friday, Friday. That's right, it's time for your calls to the Think Line. That's 866-65-THINK. Again, 866-65-THINK. You call that number, you'll get a voicemail. You leave me a message in two minutes or less, ask your question or make your point up front. Follow up with the details. Don't lead off with the details. I promise you it will derail your call and make it less likely for you to get on the air. Call from a quiet location. Uh, call from somewhere where you have some bars on your cell phone if you actually are calling from a cell phone. Because there's going to be nobody on the other end to tell you that you can't be heard and that your call sounds like this. Hi, Jack. I uh, and was wondering... You won't know that, and I won't be able to use your call. Anyway, you do that, there's a good chance you'll get on the air. I've got uh, 11 calls plus two expert panel calls keyed up for you guys today. Before I get to that, though, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you by helping to make sure the show's for you here Monday through Friday, five days a week. Sponsor of the day number one today, BulkAmmo.com. Gun, no ammo equals what? Expensive club. I mean, that's what it comes down to. If you have a gun with no ammunition in it, it is it is functionally no longer a gun. Now, the law may not agree with that. If you live in one of these states that puts you in jail for owning a gun of a certain kind, they may still call it a gun. But for all practical purposes, a gun with no ammunition is useless. Maybe you can hit somebody with it. Maybe you can barter it or you know hawk it or something. But you can't actually use it as a firearm. So you got to have ammo. you got to have in case there's like, I don't know, an ammo shortage. That happens from time to time. You gotta have it so you can train with the gun so that you're an effective operator to complete the triangle of gun operator efficiency. And you've gotta have ammo just basically to have stored up so that you know that it's there when you need it. Great place to make that happen is bulkammo.com. Remember, if you're a member of our support brigade, they do offer a discount to you, actually a special deal to you if you're buying more than I think a couple hundred dollars worth of ammo. Next up today, Ready Made Resources, the company that does what it says and says what it does. All the resources you need, ready made, ready to go on their website, point, click, buy, shipped to you with great pricing and, and great service. And I do mean everything from 12 volt appliances for your solar and wind projects, long term storage food, stuff to make your long term storage food up yourself, um, pressure canners, pressure cookers, you name it, they've got it. They've got it all gardening the guns and everything in between. ReadyMadeResources.com. Uh, next up, our discount vendor of the day, Mai Tai Coffee. I, I said they were the discount vendor recently, so their rotation should be pretty far out, but I put them at the head of the, the line today for a reason, because I wanted to tell you this story. So I've been buying the heck out of this Mai Tai Coffee, and uh, then I've been spoiled because the, the, our, our contact there sends me coffee every time we do an event. So I really didn't pay attention to my stockpile of Mai Tai Coffee. I, the prepper, failed to prepare with enough Mai Tai Coffee. And today I got up, and my wife usually has the coffee maker ready, so all i got to do is play my stupor at 6 o'clock in the morning, push the button, and then the coffee maker starts going. And then I you know, I do a few things and come back, and there's coffee, and I'm happy, and I pour the hot coffee, and it tasted like crap to me. And I'm like, what the heck is this? She says, that's the coffee we always used to drink. I'm like, well, what happened to the Mai Tai coffee? She's like, you let it run out. 
Okay, I need to get some coffee ordered stat. Um, it may not get here before I leave for vacation next week, honestly. But uh, I got to get it ordered because I've got to have it. That's that's the difference, I, I, I think. Uh, if I could put a you know a finger on it, that the, their coffee just has something about it that actually makes other forms of coffee not taste so good. Now this wasn't a really high end gourmet coffee that she had today. It was one of our stockpiled big cans of stuff, but still. It just wasn't the same, and I've got to get back to the Mai Tai Coffee. If you're an MSB member, you get 10% off all your Mai Tai Coffee. I warn you, it does cost more than the stuff you buy in the grocery store, and once you start drinking it, you'll be like me, stuck with it, but sometimes it's worth it to have the really good stuff in life. So I'm drinking some Rainforest Green Tea instead of coffee right now. Anyway, uh, do remember I am running a sale on the Member Support Brigade. The discount code is SPRING14. Something went wacky with the freaking discount code last night. About 10 of you guys tried to use it. It didn't work. I've gotten it fixed. Um, so if you tried to use it, you can try again. Discount code is SPRING14. If you were one of the people, though, that got hit by the system glitch, I think the reason it won't work for you even after I fixed it is this. The system only lets the customer use a coupon once which I don't know why I even said it that way, because you only have one account, it wouldn't really matter. But it is set up that way. So if you tried to use it, but it didn't work, and the system thinks you used it, it locked you out and won't use that code again. So two is one, one is none. If you are in that position, you can use 14spring, 14spring, uh, 14spring is a discount code, or spring14 is the discount code. Either one will work. So that gets you your first year for 30 bucks. Consider joining if you haven't done so already. Um, and, and with that, let's get into the year that was the episode, 1337. 1337 is Leet Speak. Leet Speak, or Hacker Speak, is the practice of using a combination of letters and numbers to disguise their writing. The year 1337 defines the whole idea, since if you look at the numbers in a certain way, you can see the word Leet, meaning Elite. My take by Alex Shrugged, who puts these together for us. I've used Leet Speak before, but not in, in that name. I discovered it when I was in a, using it in a minor way in a book I read, uh, when I read the book Little Brother by Cory Doctorow. It's a novel about computer security and avoiding scrutiny of homeland security, written from the perspective of a San Francisco leftist. I found it fascinating the left and right have, have, do have something in common. The book is offered free by the author as an ebook. I provided a link below in case anyone would like to give it a read. Uh, so that is in the TSP Wiki in the 1337 episode. There'll be a link uh, there today. I, I put this in because my first question of the day, when I get to it from a caller, is going to actually bring this point back up. So that's why I pulled this one today versus the uh, the piece about the Hundred Years' War, even though this is in a historical segment. I'd also like to point out that. Being able to communicate with others without other people knowing what the hell you're talking about, to me, is a fundamental human right. I don't think anybody has a right to know what my private communications with another person are. That's why I like encryption to a degree. I'll also tell you this. There's, there's, there's old tech ways to do encryption. Probably, and this is just a little lesson here, if you ever need to pass information and not have somebody able to figure out what it is, probably the most bulletproof method of encryption that exists is called book code. Now, for book code to work, you and the other party need two exact same copies of the book. But book code is is virtually unbreakable. I guess anything can be done with brute force and cryptography, but this is how book code works. There's actually quite a few different ways that book ciphers can be used, but this is going to be the easiest one. So if I wanted to write a letter to you, and the first word in the, in the, in the first sentence was the, 
I'd take a book, and again, we both have the same book, and I'd look for the word the, and let's say I found it as the seventh word on page 21. I'll put 7-21. Seventh word, page 21. You would in your book go to page 21, seven word, the. And you just continue to do that. Now, there's limits because you have to be able to find the word you're looking for in the book. So a thicker book is better. A book with less words per page is kind of better because it's less counting. Uh, there's also annotations that people use where it would be like uh, seventh Pay, you know, you have to decide yourself in the key which which order the numbers go in, which is another variable. This makes it very difficult to, to, to decipher without the book, right? So maybe we say the page goes first, the paragraph goes second, and the word goes third. So now you got less counting to do in your book. You can decipher faster. So I could say page seven, so seven, second paragraph two, and then eighth word. So seven dash two dash eight would be the first word. Now let's say that word was the. One of the things in simple codes that's e that, that makes it easier to crack is, you know, if you have seven two whatever I said seven two eight multiple times, and I figure out in one place where it is, I kind of figure out the rest of it. Well, the next time I use the word the, I'll probably use a different page. In fact, the way this is supposed to be done is once I use that caricature seven two eight, I put a line through that in my book. And when I'm on the other end deciphering, I put a line through that in my book. That usage of that word is not to be used again. Okay, so we need to have multiple books and a key that identifies the book. And as we get to a point where a book is no longer usable, we need to add new keys, which you could send in my next book or my next cipher. What book, what version, whatever, how to get it. So even in the world of all this high-tech code, That is probably one of the most difficult to break ciphers that you would ever come up with. And if you go to like Barnes and Nobles or something like that, if you can find one that's still open, and they have those big tables of like the classic books and all, where they sell them for like two or three bucks a copy, and they're just sitting there stacks of the same editions. Just saying, if it's something that's on your mind and you ever think there might be a place for something like that, it might be good to have and. You know, the works of Edgar Allan Poe don't exactly stand off the shelf as being something dangerous. Though I do like Poe. If you like Edgar Allan Poe's works, let me know in the comments section today. That's had nothing to do with the show. I just wanted to throw that out there. All right, what I want to get into now before I take a call is something that happened on Facebook recently. So I posted this article that was put out by Princeton University. And it was titled, A New Study Confirms the United States is No Democracy, but Actually an Oligarchy. And it's on Shit at the Fan Plan uh, website, and then there's a link to the actual article. And what it basically says is that the people of this country believe that we are a democracy, that your vote matters, that what you say matters, that, 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 that the will of the people is in fact exercised through our government, And the study examined exactly what government does, how government does it, who influences government, and said, no, the government doesn't give a shit what you want. Gee, somebody's been telling you that for a while. That there are people in power, elite, elitists in power, that actually control the inner and outer workings of government to the exclusion of the, of the will of the people. The will of the people is taken into account the way you would in a marketing campaign. But in the end, you want to sell something. So it's not that the government actually yields to the will of the people, the government structures its messaging around what it's doing to what the people want to hear, 
and do what, and the, but the government actually does exactly what they want and lies to you and, and keeps you dumb, stupid and under their foot. And it's not just the government. It's the, it's the structured power elitist. Now, this is Princeton University. This is not exactly, you know, the type of university that you would expect to come out and, and be for smaller government and things like that. But it was an honest assessment of the situation. Could it be better? Probably. This isn't the problem. I want to read to you one person's actual response. And I'm going to have to censor words to read this response. Okay? This is from somebody we'll just call Tim, who posted publicly on Facebook, so I have no problem reading his dumbass comment. Here we go. Hey, Princeton. F-Wad T-Waffle uh, DFs. Okay? All right, you got that? And then there's about 19 exclamation points. We have never, in all caps, been a GD, MFing democracy, never. And then there's about 30 exclamation points. We were a constitutional republic, but never a effing democracy. And it's spelled out. Your claim that we were destroys all credibility you once may have had. Let's start out with the first part. Hello, way to miss the forest for the trees there. Okay, listen. The point here is that there are elitists in control of the damn country and a major Ivy League university has come out and stated that. Okay? That, that's, that's the point here. Oh, by the way, there was a couple of people that had to point out that when I did this thing on my phone after drinking my first cup of coffee halfway down in the morning with my eyes halfway open, that the dadgone autocorrect on the iPhone changed it to Ivory League. And that that was important. Hello, forest trees, pot kettle, ring ring, pot kettle online. Come on, hello, hello. Do you get it or are you this effing stupid in your own words? This is not about a typo. And this is not about a technicality, which I'm going to get to in a minute, and how misled you've been about that one, by the way, of republic versus democracy. This is about the fact that we have, a again, an Ivy League institution Telling you what I've been telling you for years. The government doesn't do what the people want, period. That there are people at the elite layer in total control of the company. A company, country. Well, it might as well call it a company because that's how they're running the damn thing, like a company versus a country. But it's like a company with an open checkbook that never goes broke because they can just make more money. It's the worst of all things. And you people that don't get that, and, and you want to go off on a technicality, you just look dumb. And it's not just him, okay? It's not just him. There's a bunch of people saying this. This He made the biggest ass out of himself doing so. But let's actually examine this whole thing. We're not a republic, or we're not a democracy, we're a republic. Let's start off with one of the roots of that. One of the biggest things that people cite with that, oh, by the way, Tim cut and pasted like tons of crap from some guy that wrote an article that said that he's right. Well, that doesn't prove you're right. Uh, that proves you're weak and can't make your own argument, by the way. But one of the most often cited things behind this is that supposedly during the Constitutional Convention as it was winding down, when Benjamin Franklin came out, a lady said to him, Dr. Franklin, Do we have a republic or a democracy? And he quipped back to her, you have a republic, ma'am, if you can keep it. Okay, that never happened. It almost happened, but it never happened. Here's why. The question was not, was it a republic or a democracy? The question was, do we have a republic or a monarchy? You can look it up if you want to. Uh, I'm on Wiki Quotes reading it right now. 
In fact, I'll read the exact citation to you. A lady asked Dr. Franklin, Well, doctor, what have we got, a republic or a monarchy? A republic replied the doctor, if you can keep it. From a note of uncertain date by Dr. James McHenry, in a footnote he added, the lady here, here alluded to was Mrs. Powell of Philadelphia, published in the American Historical Review, version 11, page 618, at the close of the Constitutional Convention in 1787. So the entire concept here of minutia that we're arguing about, are we a Republican or a democracy, one of the most cited anchors from a founder to make your case is meaningless. Now here's the reality. And this is thinking for yourself and not looking for somebody else to give you the answer. And tell, this is like saying, well, he said, he said clip and he should have said magazine. So in fact, it's worse. It's worse because at least technically there is a difference between a clip and a magazine. And it's a hard difference. Okay. It still doesn't matter, but here's the truth. The United States of America is a democratic republic, a democratically elected republic. So you could put it this way. We are a republic in the form of a democracy, or we are a democracy in the form of a republic. But a republic is not magic. Least I remind you of the USSR, the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics. Hmm, they were a republic? Yeah. Uh, China is a democratic republic. Did you know that? China is a democratic republic. Their official form of government is they are a democratic republic. Some other nations that are currently republics, Yemen, Zambia, Zimbabwe, Venezuela, Vanuatu, Uzbekistan, Turkey, Tunisia, Switzerland, Sri Lanka is a republic, South Sudan is a republic, South Korea is a republic. Do you see any magic in being a republic? Do you? I mean... <laughs> it dumbfounds me that people think like that's some kind of magic word. Some other places that are officially republics that you may not want to um, exactly emulate would be Nigeria and North Korea, uh, Pakistan, Palu, um, Palestine's a republic, um, Moldova is a republic, Mexico is a republic. The Marshall Islands are republics. I'm, I'm reading a list here. That's why some of them are coming in. Or Iran and Iraq are both considered republics, as is Israel, Italy, and Ireland. And I mean, do, do, you, do you really think that, that, that saying that does anything to assert a nation's independence and freedom? I feel like I'm giving a civics lesson 101 here, but here's the deal with a republic. A republic by its nature simply means that the... Constitution that the nation is run under places limits upon the government and places limits upon what the people can do to other people within the republic. But there's no, there's no place where, well, you've given the government or, or the majority too much power, you're not a republic anymore. It simply means that the structure is set up that way. It's a structure of government. You know, The Bahamas are a constitutional monarchy. So they have a constitution, but they're a monarchy. They're not a republic. So this is a structure. Whereas Bangladesh is a republic. Belarus is a republic. Right? Bolivia is a freaking republic. And in many of these places, the majority has a lot more rights than the minority does. In other words, the whole point of our republic 
was to be majority rule without obstructing, obstructing minority rights. In other words, just because my side lost the election didn't mean you got to pass laws that I don't get to keep my house anymore. There were certain limits placed on government, and our Constitution was so effective at that that one of the things the founders and, and the framers of the country originally had to do was immediately a thing called the Bill of Rights to further restrict government because they were like, holy crap, we left too many holes in this. Okay, So it is a republic. There is no doubt that it is a republic. But it's not a monarch-based republic. It is a democratically elected republic. So when, when someone says the United States is supposed to be a democracy, unless they're saying it from stupid town, which means, well, since our side won, you shut up and go away, they are not incorrect. And when somebody says it's a republic, they are not incorrect. And when you act out in the face of information that doesn't, it doesn't really matter about this technicality, the information's far more important. You look stupid, Tim. Really, really dumb. I mean, how about you read the report? How about you actually take in the truth? And here's why I think people do this. And I have to say, I myself did this yesterday. When I read, when I mentioned this off the cuff yesterday, I said, well, technically we're a republic. But I'm not going to go down some mudslide over it. And the truth is, I need to rein myself back in on that one too because it's, it's nonsense. It's nonsense. It's usually brought up either when the person in a debate can't actually debate the issue and wants to just make the other side look dumb by saying, well, since you can't even get that right, your point doesn't matter. Or it's brought up because the person's very uncomfortable with the actual discussion. See, the actual discussion is far more important than whether or not we call ourselves a democracy or a republic or a republican democracy or a democratic republic. It's far more important. It's does the promise of the nation that the individual citizens vote matters, is it kept? And the answer is no. I've only been telling you that for four or five years. That's the issue. So instead of facing the issue, we want to go down a rat hole and talk about a technicality that we don't even get right. Again, I understand, and I know I'm going to get hate mail from some of you, I understand exactly what you mean when you say we are a republic, not a democracy. I understand it precisely what you mean. In other words, we don't vote on everything, and there's a structure and control to the government in the form of a republic-based government. I understand that. And that if 51% of the people simply vote to do something to the other 49% of the people, but those th that, that action is prohibited by the Constitution of the Republic the minority is protected, and you can't just vote away somebody else's rights. I totally understand that. That does not negate the fact that we are electing our officials through a supposed anyway, or promised anyway, or marketed to us anyway, democratic process. And you wonder why we have the Republicans and the Democrats in our society. And you don't think there's anything subliminal about that whole party naming convention system or whatever, whatever, okay. Anyway, I've said my piece on this, and if you make a big deal out of this in the future, then you're acting like a dumbass. I'm sorry. If you are rebutting someone who is actually trying to make the case that since the majority voted for something, everybody else should shut up and accept it, then you're making a valid point. 
But when the other party is just using the words interchangeably, and the point they're making actually doesn't have very much to do with whether or not that is the case, and you're doing it just to act out, you look dumb. And it's important if we're going to debate on both sides of an issue that we don't look stupid in a debate. Because some of the things we're debating here are actually pretty daggone important. And with that, let me get to your first call. Hey, Jack. It's Mark from New Jersey. Uh, my question is about asparagus. We just had a pretty cold frost. went down to about 18 degrees in April, yes. And... Um, I had some asparagus popping its head up through the uh, soil earlier, and now it's all limp. Should I cut it off? Should I not worry about it? Uh, what should I do? Let me know. Thanks. Enjoy the show. Have a good day. Well, that's a great one to tra change the uh, the tide of things here a little bit and, 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 and be a little bit more low-key. Um, and it's actually a really easy one, and it won't take long to answer. The answer is it doesn't really matter. Um, if it's been hit hard enough with frost that it's killed those tips that are coming up out of the ground and you cut it off, it won't hurt anything. If you leave them there, it's probably not going to hurt much either. Um, I'd take a look at them, and if you like get close to the ground and they seem firm and they're kind of mushy up, I'd cut them down below where they're mushy, and it'll probably coppice and spread out others. But either way, your crumbs, your root system underground, is going to send out new shoots. The actual thing you got to be careful with now is wherever you were at, in your your cycle of harvest. So if this is a second year and you're going to take a little bit, um, your third year you're going to take a little bit more, and your fourth year you're going to take a full harvest with asparagus, um, and your first year you really would take nothing, don't take more uh, because of the late frost. In other words, consider that everything that was up, that got hammered, pretend it was harvested, and then make that count toward your harvest cycle this year. So you've lost that is the way to look at it because it's very important that your root systems and your asparagus continue to develop underground. And the first year asparagus is just little bitty things. And the second year you get some pretty nice fern action. The third year you get really big ferns, really big ferns because what asparagus is is a fern. And the part we eat is a shoot that comes up and we break that off or cut that off, you know, just a little bit above the ground and let more shoots come back up as the plant's like, hey, You took away my shoot, and they sent another one up. Uh, we got hit by a frost, a late frost ourselves. We had 27 degrees in April here in Texas, more global warming, I guess. Uh, but it didn't hurt my asparagus at all. What did it hurt my asparagus, and those of you with geese, this is a little heads up, geese like to snap the top off the asparagus. So uh, I wasn't going to harvest any of mine this year. I've got purple asparagus in, and this is its second year, and I was going to give it a full two years of being left alone. Uh, and it got a little bit harvested because they went out and they just ate. They didn't even eat it, jerks. They snapped the top off. So they were up about six, eight inches high, and they snapped off like the top two-inch tips. And it's coppicing and sending more up. But just so you know, geese will tear up your asparagus. Um, I wouldn't really worry about it, but if I was going to cut it off, I'd either cut it off at the ground level, or if there's any firmness left, I'd cut it below the mushy, you know, frost-killed point. We've had some late frosts everywhere this year, so I'm sure that's affected other people. Anyway, let's go ahead and take another call. Yeah, Jack, this is Alan in Texas. I had a question about the difference between uh, freeze-dried food and uh, dehydrated as far as, you know, dry-packaged foods for cooking. If there was a uh, 
real difference between the quality of the food as far as how long it would last uh, in dry storage and uh, the value of the uh, content as far as minerals and vitamins and, and uh, nutritional value. Uh, thanks for all you do. Thank you. Bye. Um, it's a great question, and while I'm going to say this straight up front, it also depends on the the item that you're you're using. But in effect, freeze drying is the most expensive and best way to prepare food. Okay, it is the best. There is no better method uh, to preserve food long term than freeze drying. There is nothing that can compare to its longevity. Um, how well it retains nutrition, uh, how well it t retains its texture, how easy it is to reconstitute, and how good it will taste, how, how close to the original the food will taste when rehydrated at the end. Let's talk about the process. So freeze-drying is a process where we actually take the food and we flash-freeze it means it, it, it's, it goes from not frozen to frozen almost instantaneously. Very, very quick cooling process. And then a vacuum is used. A, vac, a very powerful vacuum takes this now hardened food and sucks the moisture out of it. 95% or better of the moisture is effectively removed from the food. And because it's frozen... It doesn't squish, right? It's 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 been made rigid, and that way, that's why when you look at freeze dried chicken cubes, for instance, they're still cubical. They're not mashed down like a piece of jerky. When you add water to that food, it pretty much goes back to exactly the way it was. I would say that there's almost no difference between reconstituted freeze dried food and properly stored frozen food. Once the freeze dried food is rehydrated. And it's so a piece of freeze dried chicken, once reconstituted and served up, is about the same nutritional and textural and taste quality as a piece of chicken that was properly sealed up and frozen in the deep freezer. Okay? Dehydrated, not so much. Dehydration will remove between 70 and 90% of the fluid in a food, depending on the method used in the food itself. Um, technically, you would say that freeze-drying has a longer shelf life. It depends. It depends. Because a lot of the shelf lives are bullshit. Like when the can says, you know, five years or whatever, it's, it's BS. That food doesn't go from being perfectly okay, you know, today on April 18th, and then become bad on April 19th. It just doesn't. And, and dehydrated vegetables, for instance, generally have a shelf life of 25 years or greater if properly stored. Here's how you make the decision. What are you storing and for what purpose? If you are storing meat and you're buying something, I would go with freeze-dried every time. If you're storing like a pre-prepared meal, I would go freeze-dried every time. Okay. If you're storing vegetables, then dehydrated is good enough. And some vegetables more than others. Dehydrated corn, rehydrated and cooked, no problem. Potatoes? No problem, especially if you're using the soups or stews or something like that. No problem. Uh, squash, especially like zucchini no, and yellow squash, no problem. 
Tomatoes, it's a different animal, you know, the sun-dried tomato thing, and you store them in oil and all. They're good, but it's a different animal. Um, green beans, not so much. I'm not at all enamored with what happens to a green bean when it's rehydrated. It's just, it's not. Um, beans, actual dry beans, you know, like lentils and chickpeas and navy beans and white beans and stuff like that. There's no need to freeze dry a bean. It's just not necessary. The only exception would be if you take a bean and you cook it and then you freeze dry it, then you end up with an instant bean. Okay. But if you're just storing a, a big sack of pinto beans, as long as rats or something don't get into it, will last longer than you will with almost no uh, action at all. I mean, in a big burlap sack. It's probably not the best way to store them, but they're going to last a long-ass time and be viable both nutritionally and as seed. So it's one of those things where it's absolutely the case that freeze-drying is better, but it also costs more. So to me, it's it's to be reserved for the high-quality foods that are part of your long-term storage. So what we have that's freeze-dried are things like sausage crumbles, um, hamburger meat, Chicken cubes, beef cubes, shrimp, uh, in the big number 10 cans. With uh, fruits, we also usually go with the freeze-dried route with fruits. They just taste better. They reconstitute better. They're more usable. And frankly, every once in a while, we're like, oh, I need a snack. And we go upstairs and get like a can of blueberries or apples out. And we know we need to replace some right now, actually, because we've done that a few times. Because my... My, uh, I guess you'd call him my grandson at this point. Um, he loves all of that stuff. The blueberries, the raspberries, the apples, the bananas. And the fruit is just better that way. Vegetables, I'm inclined to always go the dehydrated route because it's less expensive. And you'll see that almost in most cases, what's available is dehydrated. Uh, now, again, if you like green beans, I'd go with freeze-dried. Or I'd can them myself. Or I'd flash-freeze them myself. Or I would pickle them or something like that. A, a, a rehydrated, dehydrated green bean is just never quite right. And broccoli, so-so. Broccoli's fine for doing things like broccoli cheddar soup. But it's not going to be something that really works that well with things. Cabbage works well for soup. Your dehydrated vegetables are going to work better in soups and stews and sauces and sautés and jambalayas and rice dishes and things like that. They are not ever going to be, I don't care what anybody says, just like they were before you dehydrated them. They're just not. Certain things get closer than others. Mushrooms dehydrate fabulously. Mushrooms just dehydrate in the most fabulous way in the world. They rehydrate. They taste awesome. Mushrooms, I would never bother with with free, paying premium for a freeze-dried mushroom. I grow my own, slice them up, and dehydrate them. Or forge my own and dehydrate them. Or if I had to buy them, Buy them dehydrated. There's no problems there. So that's the basics of the difference. Higher quality, but should be reserved, in my opinion, for higher quality foods where the texture, flavor, and structure of the food is of more importance to you. Um, and, and again, with meats, it's really key. So again, our stuff is the sausage crumbles, the hamburgers, the chicken, the beef, the pork, the shrimp. We have pork chops. I mean, we have all kinds of stuff like that as part of our storage. And, and that's that high-quality premium protein that we have in storage that we are always going with freeze-dried and fruits as well. Let's take another call. 
Hi, Jack. Uh, Daryl from Virginia here. I'd like to hear your thoughts on geothermal heat pumps. Uh, I researched these systems about 10 years ago, only to find out that I had neither the land nor the money to install one. My situation has changed now, and I find that there's very little new information on the subject. I'm especially surprised that I can't find any info on your podcast. Still, the biggest negative is cost, as far as I can tell. Even with the huge cost, the time to break even can be as little as three years and not more than 12 years, at least according to the estimates I've seen. If you stack some of the labor with other work to a homestead, the time decreases. For instance, if you rent earth-moving equipment for berms and swales, you could bury your horizontal tubing while you're at it. Also, if you installed a pond on your land, you're, you're all set for an open-loop system, provided it's deep enough. There must be some other disadvantages that I'm not aware of. Any info you can provide would be greatly appreciated. Thanks for all you do. Well, I just find that to be a perfect question for resident council, ex expert council member Stephen Harris on all things energy. So I'm going to kick that one to Steve. Steve, let's uh, hear what you got to say, bro. Daryl from Virginia. This is Steve Harris with the expert panel calling in to answer your question on heat pumps. Oh, yes, they can be expensive. Some people get suckered into them with no return on investment. On that three-year to 12-year ROI you talked about, those numbers can be really biased. Just like the people selling you grid-tie solar panels tell you that you'll get your money back, yeah, right, watch your numbers really carefully. Beware of the salesman. Now, sometimes when people ask me questions, they ask me for the short answer or the long answer. I'm afraid I'm going to give you the long answer here, and when I'm done, you'll know everything you need to know about if a heat pump will work for you, and how to select which type you might want. Now, a heat pump is nothing more than an AC system, an air conditioning system like you have in your house right now, that will, one, work as an AC system, or two, work in reverse, and, and instead of cooling, it heats the house. Inside your house, you have an evaporator in your furnace for the refrigerant or the working fluid. Outside of your house, you have a condenser. When you are in AC mode, the evaporator gets cold, and your furnace now blows air and cools your house, and the condenser outside, of course, it gets hot. It's pumping heat. Your, air, your AC system is pumping heat from inside of your house, getting cold, and moving it to the outside of the house, getting hot. Now, in heating mode for a heat pump, the evaporator in your furnace gets hot, and the condenser outside of the house, this is in the wintertime, it gets cold. Yeah. When heating your house with a heat pump in the wintertime, the unit outside gets colder than the air outside. Just think about that for a little while. Now, the way an AC system works in detail is outside the house is the big box with the coils and the big fan and you have a compressor in there. It's usually in the center. This compresses refrigerant, and the refrigerant gets hot from the compressor, from the, actually the compressant, from the compression of the gas. When you compress a gas, it gets hot. If you're wondering why, just go to Wikipedia, look up Bernoulli, and PV equals NRT. That's not part of this discussion. Just trust me, it gets hot. Now, the hot gas must be immediately cooled, so it immediately goes into the cooling coils around the compressor with the big fan to move the air. 
The refrigerant drops in temperature. This refrigerant is then moved to the evaporator. Before it gets to the evaporator, the refrigerant goes through any of a various number of type of expansion valves. This expands the liquid refrigerant. It's like spraying a mist of perfume, which has alcohol in it. It's cold because the alcohol is evaporating. The refrigerant or the alcohol is going from a lower energy state of a liquid to a higher energy state of a vapor. In order to go from a liquid to a vapor, it needs energy. Where does that energy come from? It gets it from the hot air from your house going through the evaporator in your furnace. So the warm air is giving up the energy so the refrigerant can go from a liquid, a lower energy state, to a gas, a higher energy state, and thus the air is giving up its energy. It's now cooled and moves through the house and cools the air in your house. So when a heat pump does heating, the valves are automatically thrown, so the refrigerant does the reverse. The compressor compresses the refrigerant, so it's hot. Now, it goes into the, quote, evaporator or heat exchanger inside of your furnace, and the cold air from the house gets warmed up by the hot refrigerant going through the heat exchanger. The hot refrigerant is now cooled back to a liquid, and that liquid goes outside to the condenser, and it's cold. And it needs to be heated by the air outside. So the fan blows and heats the liquid back into a gas, so it can go to the compressor again, and thus the condenser outside now becomes cold. Colder than the air around it. So if it's 32 outside, the unit outside is going to be colder than the ambient temperature. So, that is the basics of a heat pump. Now, you have to understand a thing or two about heat exchange. The higher the difference in temperature... Okay, the higher the difference in temperature, the better the heat flow. It's like putting your hand on a burner over the stove. The stove is at 16 degrees, 1600 degrees Fahrenheit, and your hand is at 98. You get burned very, very fast. That's high heat transfer. So when you are in AC mode and it's 75 and sunny outside and your house is getting just a bit warm, so you turn on your AC. Then the hot working fluid, the refrigerant from your furnace, is going to the condenser unit outside of the compressor. So this fluid coming out of the compressor can be up to 225 degrees Fahrenheit. But you never see this temperature because it's coming out of the compressor on the inside of the, of the condenser outside, and it's immediately being cooled by the air and the fan through the huge number of coils, the big unit outside. So if the refrigerant is 225 and it's 75 degrees outside, it's a pretty big temperature difference, and it gets cooled down quickly. Now imagine you're in Arizona where it's 115 degrees Fahrenheit, and the sun is shining on the condenser, and it's hot, and it's hotter than 115 degrees because the sun is shining on it, and you got 200-degree refrigerant moving through it. It's not cooling the refrigerant anywhere as near as good as when it was 75 degrees outside, or even 80 the bigger the the bigger the temperature difference the higher the heat exchange and thus the more efficient the unit the higher the heat exchange the more efficient the unit this is called the coefficient of performance
Now, the coefficient of performance, I want you to remember this, coefficient of performance is a big thing you must understand when it comes to a heat pump. Now, the coefficient is also called the COP for coefficient of performance, which is how I'll refer to it. Now, the COP is what dictates your electrical bill. Listen to this, okay? These are hard numbers from Steve Harris, and you'll understand how this works. The COP is what dictates your electrical bill, and thus your return on investment and your energy savings in a heat pump versus something else. In the residential AC business, they use a different unit called SEER, S-E-E-R, but we're going to stick with COP because it's, it's easier. Now, a typical AC unit has a COP of about 3 to 1. That means it can use one unit of energy to move three units of energy. Notice I said move energy, not create energy. That's why it's called a heat pump and not a lightsaber. It's not making energy. It's just moving it. It's a heat pump. So, if your AC unit is moving 30,000 BTUs per hour to cool your big house, then that means it's taking 10,000 BTUs, 30,000 at 3 to 1 is 10,000 BTUs, okay? It's taking 10,000 BTUs of pump energy, compressor energy, to move that amount of cooling through your house. Since... There are 3,412, 3412 BTUs in one kilowatt hour. 10,000 BTUs of energy being used to pump 30,000 divided by 3412 is about three kilowatt hours of electricity it took to cool the house for an hour. Since one kilowatt hour is about 10 cents in most of the USA, except in California where they've jacked it up to 24 cents to punish you, that means that means you just spent three kilowatt hours times ten cents per kilowatt hour, and that is thirty cents for one hour of cooling you just spent because your COP was three to one in your residential AC unit. Now, here is how this starts to tie into a heat pump system. Let's say the same AC unit we just did the numbers on was in the desert. And it was 115 degrees outside, and the heat just could not get out of the condenser as good as it could when it was 75. So the better the heat transfer, the higher the COP, the better the COP. Since our heat transfer has gone down, let's say our COP has dropped to 2 to 1 as this, in this example. So that 30,000 BTUs per hour of cooling you just did at 3 to 1 is now 2 to 1. So it took 15,000 BTUs instead of 10,000 to move that 30,000 BTUs of cooling. 30,000 is now being divided by 2 instead of 3. So 15,000 BTUs divided by 3412 BTUs in a kilowatt hour is about four and a half kilowatt hours instead of the three that we did before. So you just spent 45 cents over an hour for cooling instead of 30 cents because your heat transfer sucked. The bigger the temperature difference between the hot and the cold, the faster and the better the heat transfer, and thus the better the COP and the cheaper your electric bill. 
Now, heat transfer. Heat transfer dynamics. Let's say you have 120 degree air blowing on your hand. How fast is it warming up your hand? Gently and nice, right? Now dip your hand into a pot of 120 degree water. How fast does it heat up your hand? Right away. Almost to the point of burning you right away, okay? The heat transfer is almost instant. It's very quick and sometimes the liquid, it's very quick between liquid and something versus something in air, okay? Something in liquid, fast heat transfer, something in the air, slow heat transfer. So if liquid transfers heat better than air does, that means the COP goes up, you get rid of heat or coldness faster. So let's say you have a big fancy boat and you have an AC unit on it to keep you cool in your big fancy expensive boat. It is using the water below the boat to cool the AC unit instead of cooling it with air outside. Imagine having a great big condenser for your AC unit on your boat, taking up part of your boat space. That wouldn't fly. It uses a little the water to cool the AC unit. Its COP, because it's going from liquid to liquid, could very easily be 6 to 1. So that 30 cents you spent with a COP of 3 to, 3 to 1, sorry, that 30 cents you just spent with a COP of 3 to 1, is now 15 cents because your COP is 6 to 1. Aha! Are you starting to catch on now? There are four main types of heat pumps for your house. One is an air-to-air heat pump. This is just like your AC unit you have right now, but it can reverse itself and heat the house instead of, as well as cool it. While these work okay in the south where you have a high cooling load and a small a small heat load, in effect, you and I know they suck because we're using ambient air as a heat exchange medium. Air is an insulator. It is not a good heat exchanger. That's how a blanket works on you at night. It traps air. Same with your clothing, trapped air. So we don't want to use air as our heat conductor. So, number one, air-to-air heat pump, okay, not very good. Two, this is what Dylan was talking about, a buried loop heat pump. This is a type where you dig down about six feet and you put in 100 or 200 feet of buried pipe down on the ground and a liquid flows through the pipe. So what is this doing? It does have a liquid cooling or heating the condenser of your heat pump system. So it's got a great heat transfer. Now, all of that liquid goes through pipes in the ground to do what? In summer AC mode, it cools the liquid in the pipes. The ground does. The earth does. Why is it about six feet down? Because that's where the earth is cool, and it's pretty much a constant temperature, and it stays there. So your deep ground temperature in Arizona could be 80 to 85 degrees Fahrenheit. Yes, I've measured this personally. So let's say it's 110 degrees outside, and instead of your the condenser being cooled with 115 degree air, it's being cooled by a liquid that is in an 85 degree immersive environment. So the COP is now higher. Higher COP, lower AC bill. Starting to catch on? Now what's wrong with this? Well, just how good does dirt conduct heat?
Let's say I put some dirt in an oven and heat it to 120 degrees Fahrenheit, and then I pour the dirt on your hand. Well, how does how well does it heat your hand for how long? You'll heat it quicker than air, but nowhere as near as good if I put your hand in 120 degree water. So, that is the problem with a buried loop system. It's dependent upon getting rid of its heat or its cold to the stable ground temperature of the dirt, the earth that is around it. This is one of the most common types of heat pump systems. I really don't like it. You know, it's return on investment depending upon where you are, your temperature, your climate, your ground temperature, whether your dirt is saturated with, you know, water, you have a high water table. I really don't like it. This is where you get your return on investments of like 12 years, 10 years, okay? While it does a decent job in the south for cooling, it does not do a great job in the north for healing, for heating, not healing, what am I saying? Does not do a great job in the north for heating. Our ground temperature up here is around 65 degrees Fahrenheit, again, Stephen Harris measured. Try sucking heat out of a 65-degree earth to heat up a house when it's zero outside. I think you can see the problem here. Now, number three, closed-loop well heat pumps. Oh, these are the best. This is where you have a small water well, and you're you're using the water, which is at earth temperature of your area, to heat or cool the heat pump heat exchangers, liquid to liquid. So for me, I'd always have 65-degree water cooling my 225-degree Fahrenheit heat exchanger if I was in AC mode. Oh, yeah. Now, that's some good heat exchange. And that is water directly on the heat exchanger, fast heat transfer. COP, 6 to 1 or better. Low AC in heating bills. Now, I take the warm water and I shove it back into the earth through another well. We have an up well and down well. Let's say they're 100 feet or more away from each other, and it works pretty good. I like these heat pumps. You don't have to spend money on burying all that pipe and digging up all that dirt and the rest of the mess. you got to spend money to have two wells, an up well and a down well. Usually you want this separate from your main water well because it's much lower water flow rate. You're, it's usually not a 220-volt uh, well pump. It's a much lower rate, much lower electricity use, so much more economical. So you might have to have like a one or one-and-a-half-inch well drilled on your property. This is good if you have shallow water, you know, water at 50, 100, 150 feet down. It's much lower cost. I even had a friend of mine that just used the water coming up the well and then just dumped out the water going out of the system. And it flowed out of a small one-inch hose, and it was flowing out about a gallon per minute into a field of grass. Okay, So you don't always need a down well. It's just neater and simpler. Now, another thing you mentioned, type number four of heat pump systems. An open loop heat pump. This is where you have a lake or a big pond or some sort of water on your property. The bigger, the better. The deeper, the better. Because the deeper it is, the colder the water is at the bottom. Now you might think you just suck up water from the pond and run it through the heat pump system and then just return it to the pond. But this is not smart. 
What is in a pond? Everything. Stuff growing. Algae. Fish poop. Dirt. Sediment. You name it. Whereas the well water is pretty clear and clean, the pond water is not. This gunk will build up on the outside of your heat pump heat exchanger, and it will affect what is called your outside heat transfer coefficient. What this basically means is that when you get gunk on your metal, the heat does not transfer through very well. Put mud on your hand, then put your hand over a stove burner. It can stay there for a little while, can't it? The gunk is an insulator. So, what you do is similar to what you did with the buried loop system when you have a pond. Only the loop is not six feet down. It's just under the ground so it does not get broken, let's say a foot. And it makes a loop through the bottom of the pond. You put some, you know, several coils of it in the bottom of the pond. And then the pipe comes back out of the pond, goes back to the heat pump inside of the house. So it's a closed loop running through the bottom of the pond. So the lake, so the lake water is in direct contact with, with the pipe, which is in direct contact with the water in the pipe which is in direct contact with the heat exchanger inside of the heat pump, so we have a liquid-to-metal-to-liquid heat transfer, or a liquid-to-plastic-to-liquid heat transfer, depending upon what your pipe is made of. Uh, some people don't understand, realize this, but thin plastic can conduct heat as good as metal can. So you have a good heat transfer either way, and that means you have a great COP. That means you use less electricity to move the heat or the cooling, and you have a lower electric bill with this heat pump system. So, that is why heat pump is more expensive, significantly more expensive. It's got a lot of piping and valves and control logic to switch between a cooling heat pump and a heating heat pump. Plus, they're just not as mass manufactured as a simple residential unit. Where I live up here in Pennsylvania, everyone has an air conditioner on their house. No one's got a heat pump system. So there's probably at least a 1,000 to 10,000 AC units made for every heat pump system. They're just much more mass manufactured and thus much more economical. This contributes to the price. So you wanted to know the advantages and disadvantages of a heat pump. Now that I've fully explained them to you, I think you can now make a decision for yourself as to the economics of a heat pump, what type you want, what type you don't want, what will work for you, and what your return on the what your return on investment might be. You might get a heat pump salesman there telling you a bunch of stuff, and you can tell him to go jump in a lake. And you wish you, if you have the lake, then you know what type of heat pump system you're going to put in. On the permal ethos property, they have a big pond, so obviously they use a closed loop system through the pond if they wanted to use a heat pump. Wow. This has been a long answer. I haven't done one for a while. This is Steve Harris for the expert panel. If you've not heard my last show I did with Jack, it was on radios and communications, everything communications, as exhaustively as I've done this on heat pumps for you. If you missed it and you want to listen to it, you can listen to it with one tap on your phone or your computer at www.radios1234.com. That's R-A-D-I-O-S, 1234.com. And if you want to see all the other shows and classes I've done with Jack, they are all listed in detail 
at steven1234.com. That's S-T-E-V-E-N-1234.com. Thanks, guys. A great question. Long answer. Call me some, call in some more questions for me. I'm running low and I just absolutely love doing these for you. Thanks, guys. Talk to you later. And with that, we've just had a 30-minute episode, damn near, on heat pumps. And uh, you guys have probably just received uh, the equivalent of at least a junior college education on heat pumps. Anyway, let's go ahead and take another call. Hello, Jack Hughes fan. My question is, do you think that there's any long-term life in the stock market? What I mean by that is I'm in my mid-20s with not much in savings, and I'm looking to start taking money more seriously. And one thing I want to do is start investing a little bit as part of my portfolio. I like the long-term idea of buying something, buying something solid and holding it for 20 years, reinvest dividends, etc. My worry is that why well, I am about financial crises, but I feel that having a strong company, um, say Microsoft, has been around a long time and is going to still be here 20 years from now in some form is a good. Um, mitigation of that. One thing I can't get around is the idea of a currency reevaluation. How could that affect the long-term investments? Is it something to worry about in the 20, 30-year long, long time span? Or is it something that we can kind of ignore because in 30 years it might be a revaluation of things I'll take care of and so forth. Um, like I said, I'm looking more at the long-term idea um, yeah, something I can look on for retirement. I'm not trying to beat the stock market as a day trader. I'm just looking for one avenue to put some money in, among many others, to start taking my financial life seriously. Thank you. Enjoy the show. Is there, let's start out with this. Is there long-term life in the stock market? Do I believe that 20 years from today it will be a good thing to be invested in the stock market? My instincts are within 20 to 30 years, you're going to see the market ravaged like you've never seen before, and there'll still be a stock market, and there'll still be life in it. Okay? Because basically the stock market, this is what people don't understand, the stock market really isn't a thing. The, the stock market's like a house, and inside the house live all the stocks, and all the stocks are of different companies. So to have a situation where there's no companies worth investing in, It doesn't matter what your money's in because your money's gone. Let me say that again. If you have a situation where there's no companies left to invest in, there's no economy. There's no, there's no modern civilization. It's over. It's gone. It's done. There is no more. Now, are there any, you know, drastic global scale impacts that could cause this? Yes. Is it possible? Yes. Is it probable? No. Um, the currency revaluation thing is definitely possible, and we've been able to do that five times in the last 120 years without totally wrecking things. Somehow, well, they've been able to pull it off. Exactly what the next one will look like, though, it was probably going to have greater ramifications than anything we've done before because we've, we've gone all the way to one extreme. We started with a gold standard. We went to a partial gold standard. We went to, and at that point, we were actually sitting on a partial gold standard and a partial silver standard. We eliminated the silver component. Then we closed the gold window. Right? These were all in effect. Every single time we did this was in effect a default on our money. Every single time it was a default on our money. No, it wasn't. Yes, it was. Just the Silver Act. 
The Coinage Act, 1964. We, up until 1964, said if you are holding a United States silver coin or a United States quarter, it is backed with a certain percentage of silver because we made them out of it. If you are holding a 50-cent piece, it has a certain amount of silver. If you're holding a dime, it has a certain amount of silver. If you're holding a dollar coin, it has a certain amount of silver. And we as a nation had basically backed our money with that silver. In 1965, we said we're not going to do that anymore. We're just not going to do it. And we began to issue money without the silver content. Now, the, the, the good thing for people in 64, those that actually saw the writing on the wall, is it was really easy for about five years to hoard silver as long as you had money to hoard silver in. And that's what happened, and that's why it's very hard to find any circulating silver coinage anymore. And it's not just because of the, how old it is, because I find 1965, 1966, 1967 quarters all the time. I mean, all the time. And I find plenty of nickels that are older than 64. Plenty of them, because it doesn't matter, right? Except for the Steel War nickels that people plucked out because they're kind of cool. There's, there's, there's just no, there's no finding this stuff in quantity. And there wasn't even by the 80s. It was, it was really, you know, it was you, you would go through a bunch of coins and you could find a few in the 80s. And it was something people still did. But there wasn't much left. And that was a default. And you can see that it's a default because people valued the old money more than the new. Which meant the new money did not have the value that was promised by the, the government. So I just want you to understand that it is possible for the government to default on its money, not its debt, its money which is another way of defaulting on your debt, by the way, but we'll leave that for the time being. It is possible for currency to have a reset button pushed for gold, gold to be either partially or fully stripped from backing a currency and not have it off into ah, death and destruction and oblivion because we did it. Can they do it again? Well, what they would probably do the next time around is go back to a commodity-backed currency. They're either going to go to some kind of global basket currency backing or they're going to go back to gold. And it would make a lot of sense for the people in power to go back to gold because they have a lot of it. They have tons of it, literally. Shit tons of it. So a currency revaluation represents a massive shift and initially probably a brutal stock market. But it doesn't equal no more stock market. Again, you have to understand when someone says, well, there'll be no more stock market, what they're saying is there'll be no more civilization. There'll be no more companies. There'll be no more industry. There'll be no more nothing. And again, it's not that those things don't have some possibility through some, you know, solar flare, magnus eruptus extremists or, or God knows what, but a, a, an economic collapse in of itself is not capable of doing this. It's just not. But what concerns me is the, the concept that, that we've been led to believe, this is where the danger is, buy a good solid company and hold it for 20 years. That's a good way to get your ass kicked. In the end, it might work out, it might not. depends on how the dice roll in the last few years of your savings. And this is my problem with 401ks. 401ks limit you extensively to how you can invest your money. But they do serve a purpose. They allow a gradual investment over time. They allow it to come out of your paycheck where most people do not have the physical discipline to save their money. So they do allow people that otherwise would not to have savings. Even in a 401k, 
you need to have access to your 401k. You need to know your trading frequencies and cycles. In other words, how often can you change your investment allocations? One of the things that I'm disliking more and more about 401ks, when I had set up the last 401k for employees in a company that we actually ran, it was back in 2007, I think we set that 401 up, 2007, 2008, it was unlimited. You could log in to your internet-based account and change your allocations in an instant, and you could do that anytime you wanted. More and more I'm seeing people's 401ks saying you can only do that four or five times a year, some say twice a year. And what I mean by that is, let's say I had my money 20% in a stock fund, 20% in a growth and income stock fund, 20% in a bond fund, 20% in a cash value fund, and uh, 20% in you know uh, a dividend blue chip fund, or a foreign, it doesn't matter, foreign, whatever. And all of a sudden I just think the whole market's about to take a bath. So I could log in and say, put all my money into bonds, uh, and just change 100% of my allocation to bonds and all my future contributions to bonds, uh, or change it all to a cash value fund or whatever I have that's closest to a cash value fund. And I can at least move out of the way of the wrecking ball. Well, I'm seeing more and more restrictions on that because this is what they're trying to do. They're trying to, to artificially keep value in a market when it loses value. If that happens, and this is why I don't like mutual funds as a standalone investment. It doesn't mean there's not a place for a mutual fund. I don't like them as a standalone investment because we're lied to about how they work. This guy is a great manager, and he researches the companies and sends his employees there to pick the best companies. Yeah, but if it's a mid-cap stock fund, he has to buy all mid-cap stocks, period. He has no choice, and he has to stay in mid-cap funds. No matter what happens, a, a huge percentage of the investment must be in stock that meets the criteria the fund was created under. Okay, So when the market starts to take a bath and mid-cap stocks start to be liquidated, the value of the fund is going to come down as the values of the representative stocks come down. And the manager, even if he's really good, doesn't have a lot of places to go. All he can do is buy other mid-cap stocks. So all he can do is move his money into the stocks that he thinks meet the criteria that are least likely to get their asses kicked. But he has to have a certain total number of stocks for diversity's sake. So the fund is going to get beaten up. Okay. So if you're just sitting in there holding that fund or individual stocks in any format and a market takes a bath, you're taking a bath with the market. And this is what people don't get. If the market goes down by 50%, or if your investment goes down by 50%, all right, so you had a, 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 a thing trading at $100 a unit. I don't care if it's an ETF or a stock or a bond or a fund or a metal, whatever. 100 bucks, And it goes down to 50 what percentage does the stock have to go up by for you to get your money back? 50% loss requires a 100% gain to recoup. Yes, it went down 50, it has to go back up 50. But going down to 50 is a 50% loss. Going from 50 to 100 is a 100% gain. So when your financial liar pulls out the thing and says, look, the years that the market had the biggest downturns, it had the biggest upturns, and you would have lost out on those upturns if you were out during the downturn. No, you wouldn't have. You would have saved your money during the downturn, made your money during the upturn, and you wouldn't have only recouped half of what he's led you to believe that you've recouped. All right, so all of these dynamics in the stock market equal you can't just set it and forget it. 
I personally, my money that's invested in stocks right now are in high-quality dividend-producing stocks that I believe are well-insulated during a recession. They don't have as much upside gain as a lot of the, the more riskier plays, but they pay a dividend every quarter. They pay a solid dividend. They pay a historically-tracked dividend. They are all stocks that did well during the Great Recession of 2008 and 2009 and continue to pay dividends straight through. If you were listening to the show back then, that's where I said to position yourself. That's where I positioned myself. I don't give direct financial advice, but I do tell you what I'm doing. And say, and I don't say, here's a list of stocks I have, because I just think without a license, and it puts me into a liability issue. And again, my problem is I really believe if I gave you a list of five stocks and you went out and bought them, no matter what I say, if five years from now you were still holding them, And they went down. I would get hate mail from people. You said that this was a good investment and I lost money because of you. No, you. It, that's a temporary position. I believe in trading stocks. I believe in trading funds. I don't believe in high frequency or frequent trading. I don't think that you're going to sit there every single day. That's, that's like a day trader position. But I believe when you look at the market and you're like, holy crap, there's a huge, huge sign that a recession is about to take over and we're about to see major losses in the market. You exit your positions, you take your profits, and you wait it out. In those instances where waters look like they're going to get really rough, at worst you have major losses. In many instances you kind of ride through it, choppy waters, little down, little up, little down, little up. You realize you're past it and then things slowly go back to normal. Or you were wrong and there's a little bitty gain, right? And I mean, when I say a little bitty gain, I mean four or five percent. So you're sitting on gains, let's say, in a market of 50 to 60 percent. Rough waters look like they're ahead. And the best you're going to do is a four percent gain if you just stay put. You exit your position. You take your gains. You make plans for re-entry and you wait until it looks like a good time to re-enter and then you re-enter. Because otherwise you're risking all of your gains and all of your basis for three or four points, which isn't worth it. So the, the question that you're asking me, my response back to you is you need to learn about stock market. You need to learn about stocks. You need to learn about trading. You need to not rely on somebody else to tell you how to invest your money. You can get advice from them, but in the end you need to be making your own decisions. You need control. I have no problem with a young person, though, with a 401k plan, especially with a company match, setting aside 4%, 5%, 6% of their income to go in there, well allocated into mutual funds. But, but damn it, have access, know your frequency of being able to move your money to different allocations and pay attention. And when it looks like the shit's about to hit the fan in the market, move your damn money somewhere safe. And if bonds are the best you can do, move there. But know the bond market, because you might be moving to the bond market at a time when the bonds are about to take a beating. The safe position would be cash, money market cash equivalency. The problem is many of them have been stripped from your 401ks. So know what you're buying and why you're buying it, and never think long-term from the standpoint of, I'm just going to buy this stock or buy this fund and not worry about it. It's a great way to get your ass beat and lose lots of money. Let's take another call. Hi, Jack. My name is Stephen from Michigan, and I was just calling to see if you would talk about composting tips. Um, I've heard you kind of mention compost a number of different times, but I don't know if you've ever actually broke down how you guys do it specifically with your kitchen scraps or, or what kind of 
um, what kind of you know elements you use from your land or bring onto your land from other places. How you know what your composting system, that kind of thing is. Um, I'd love to hear about it. Uh, thank you very much. Bye. I'm going to give you the quick, down and dirty way that we compost right now. I have two wire hoop um, frames that are just made out of chicken wire, made into a circle about as big as you can get your arms around that sit out behind one of my sheds that are easy distance from the house to throw waste. All of the stuff that doesn't go straight to the chickens that's compostable goes there with layers of straw and builds up over time so that when we do a large compost pile, it's all added in. It's set not to compost. It's not incorporated. It's layered. And it does compost a little bit, but basically it just kind of sits there in a state of rot. Okay. The other thing that we use heavy in our compost is straw from the floor of the chicken coop that the chickens poop on, and any other straw used in bedding, like for brooding pens and stuff like that, and a neighbor that brings us horse manure mixed with hay. All right? And when we're going to make compost, this is what we do. We make a great big pile of all of that stuff, and, and before we do so, we take the tractor and we get about a wheelbarrow uh, to a wheelbarrow and a half of, of green-cut grass and weeds and everything else from the lawnmower. So we just drive the mower through the thickest stuff, And we rake it up and we load it in. There's a 10-cubic-foot uh, cart that I have behind my mower. And I try to load that up. And I put in a layer of, the, of all the mixed-together stuff that I talked about before. And I sprinkle green on it. And I put another layer and I sprinkle green on it. I put another layer and I sprinkle green. And another layer and I sprinkle green. And another layer and I sprinkle green. And another layer and I sprinkle Just like that. And I keep doing that. I build a great big pile. I try to build two, three yards at a time. So I save up. And I do this a couple times a year. And then... After four days, we turn it, and we turn it every two days for about 24 days, and it's done. If we are on the ball, and if we do our duty, and we keep it wet, that's what, that's what happens. It, hooks, it cooks, it gets very hot, it does a very, very good job. I become more and more inclined to simply take everything and put it out in piles and let the chickens just go at it. And when the chickens get bored with it, pile it up, and all of a sudden they come back and do it again, and then pile it back up, and all of a sudden they come back and do it again, And eventually it all breaks down and it rots into a pretty good composted mix. Um, so that's the two ways that we do it. If I'm going to do small-scale composting, I'm going to set up a worm bin. I, I think it's the best way to do small-scale composting. You're adding a little bit every day from the, from the house. You're much better off with a worm bin. I wouldn't even do conventional composting. Or if I did, I would accept its limits. I would set up a bin. You get yourself a big rubber-made um, garbage can, and there's a video in the MSB on how to do this. Drill some holes so you get airflow. Put a put a, a breathable pipe in it with a breather in the bottom of it, so you make like basically a canister with a breather valve in the center. Um, you just fill it up with all your waste, yard waste, kitchen waste, whatever. When it gets full to the top, build two to three of these things, right, because they're cheap to build. Take the pipe out, take the thing out, Set your pipe in your second one. Put something to cover the pipe. Get two guys, pick it up, and dump it in there. And, and just flip it over to the second one and start building a third one. Or start building the first one again. And then dump it into a third. And by the time you, if you're doing kitchen waste, by the time you get to the third one, uh, where you've got, the, the, you've got three full, the, the last one will be ready to use. It'll be black. It'll be gorgeous. But it really helps with that if you're, You know, if you're, if you're kind of in a kitchen waste model, you're probably cutting the grass and stuff like that because you're probably in suburbia. 
every time you get a chance, add a little bit of brown, add a little bit of green, add a little bit from the kitchen, add some leaves. You know, during the fall, uh, rake some leaves up, keep some bags of leaves on hand, keep them over by your compost pit. When you cut the grass, rake up some of your glass grass clippings, put a couple handfuls in, throw your kitchen waste for the weekend, throw a couple handfuls of leaves in, and then keep going. And that'll keep the browns on the top, keep the smell from being a smell. And it, you, you could probably produce three or four 32-gallon Rubbermaid tough garbage cans of compost a year that way. But in that method, you'll lose volume. So by the time you're done, you'll end up with one-half to three-quarters of a can. And the pipe I use is the big French drain pipe, the big white pipe with holes in it, and I drill more holes in it, and then I, I drill a hole in the bottom of the, the garbage can, And I put like a, a, a piece of one inch to three quarter inch pipe, uh, but sorry, half inch to three quarter inch pipe through the hole and into a hole in the bottom of that big pipe. And that creates an airflow. And I drill holes not in the top of the garbage can, all around the rim, the top rim of the garbage can and the bottom of the garbage can. I use a hole saw with like uh, three quarter inch holes. And then you get plenty of airflow. And then because the lid's on, when you wet it down, it stays wet. It's actually a really great method, but with the volume that we have now and with the chickens, I don't do it anymore. But we used it for a lot of years and it worked really good. Again, there's a video in the download section of the MSB or the video section of the MSB, I'm not sure which one, that tells how to do that. What we're doing most right now, though, is I have the neighbor, he comes over, he's got a 17-cubic-foot cart he pulls with his four-wheeler. He brings over a cartload of horse manure and hay about once a week. Now I've told him, anywhere in my pasture where you see bare dirt, pull up, dump it. And I go out there and I knock it a little bit level, a little bit smoothed out uh, with the rake or a hoe. I throw some scratch feed on it to encourage the chickens, and the chickens process it. And then we pick another spot, and we'll just improve the entire pasture that way. And that's my main focus right now. And to make my life easier with all the... Because I'm still doing tons of planting. Guys that were here for the workshop, I planted like 20 trees and, and shrubs and plants yesterday alone in the rain. And I got tired of being in the rain and wet and muddy, and I quit for a while. And I'm going to plant more today when I get done with the show. And so I just had Joe go pick up two yards of compost from our local facility down here, and I've had no issues with it. So we're using that. And we're using all of our compostables more for pasture improvement than straight compost. Because um, it's just easier. And I really encourage you, if you can find a good supplier of compost, and you're looking for someone that doesn't do a lot of agricultural waste in their compost, and doesn't take in a lot of landscapers' grass clippings. If you do that, you're going to have very few problems with residual herbicides. You're looking for someone that's using mostly tree trimmings and stuff like that. Your tree's not going to be full of herbicide. It would be dead. It's the guys that are composting lots of true green chemlon clippings. So if you talk to your facility that you can find a landscape facility near you that provides materials, ask them where, what they're composting. And Silver Creek down here, like most of their compost is made up of trees. So they're shredding trees for both leaves and for browns, and they're using a lot of like waste beverages and stuff like that to wet everything down with. So they're like recycling bottled water and beer. Um, and they make a pretty damn good, very woody, very forest-like compost that, that works well for us. So that's what we're doing there. But um, you can do anything in between. But, I mean, it, compost, again, you can make it really, really refined, and you can get a product in 22 days, You can just make a big pile of crap and keep turning it 
And over time, it will do its thing and it will break down. The only thing you don't want is anaerobic. So if you have like sticky, wet, soaked, non-breathing material and it breaks down that way, it's an anaerobic compost. Um, Dr. Elaine Ingram, who is like soil scientist extraordinaire, would just, oh my God, you've ruined everything. I don't think so. It's To me, that's okay. But what you better do then is you better spread that compost out and give it some time to dry out a little bit, re-aerate, keep moving it around, and get it back into a state that it belongs in, and then use it. If you use it in an anaerobic state, yeah, you can have a lot of problems from that. And I think from my research and from looking at a lot of different composts and, and seeing the results of a lot of different composts, I think a lot of the commercial composts that people are buying in bulk, it's not always herbicide that's the problem. I think sometimes they're doing too big a pile, too wet of a condition, and what's happening is that compost is becoming anaerobic. And the other thing I've seen, and a lot of times compost will have this, this white powdery crap, and that is a certain fungus. And if you get that compost, you'll probably find that things like tomatoes do like crap, but things like brassias, like, uh, like broccoli, do well. And, and that's a problem that will fix itself over time. So I think we can, we have, we have taken multiple problems with commercial compost and we have given them all to the, um, the herbicide boogeyman. And we've blamed everything on the herbicide boogeyman. And the herbicide boogeyman in this case is real, but he's not in every closet. We've just simply assigned him a place in every closet. So, um, and remember this, herbicides break down with UV light. So if you, if you have something you think has an herbicide problem and you spread it out, you know, less than an inch deep or more or le an inch deep, less than an inch deep or even less, and you do something like run birds through it so that they tear it up, you're going to get rid of a lot of those problems. Herbicides that will last seven years deep down in the soil will break down uh, much more quickly in exposure to UV light. Let's take a, uh, another call. Hey, Jack. I wanted to ask you a quick question. If you could give me some specific examples of what the Republicans have done in your eyes to show that they're just as bad as uh, the other side and, and or not worth supporting. Um, the thing is that I believe you, but when I think about it, no examples really rush to my mind. I mean, I was a young Republican, and I was pretty clear on why the other side was wrong. And I was right, but I was not clear on how my own side was also wrong. In about uh, winter of 2011, I was turned on to your show uh, from a friend. He sent me episode 335, The Illusion of Freedom, about how kind of debt and slavery that um, we all think we're free in. And I started listening to your show, and uh, an episode came on. I can't remember which one. And it was around the time where Barack Obama equals socialism was really becoming big. And um, you were answering the question, I believe, from a, a uh, caller, and you said, in my best Jack Spierko impression, well, does anyone really believe that John McCain is not a socialist? <laughs> and when I heard that, I got mad because I was thinking John McCain was on our side in the 2008 election. And it turns out, not really. But the reason I'm asking this question again is just because I want to have something that pops into my head when I hear about the mafia families and understand that it's not just one side that's the problem, but really, I believe that it's both sides that are a problem. Thanks, Jack. Well, this is actually the question that I, I referred to when I was going through the, the history segment in 1337 Lead, 
and that this leftist that wrote this book that Alex Shrugged mentions, and he says we have certain commonalities like not wanting to be spied on. So one of the first things I would tell you that Republicans absolutely did, that they get 100% of the blame for, is the Patriot Act. And the Patriot Act has all of the provisions that are that are being used right now for things like the NSA spying on us, for things like the intrusion on people's bank accounts. All of this intrusion on people's private lives that's occurring right now under Barack Obama, it, it, it's as if George Bush paved the freeway and now Barack Obama is driving down the road. They both are culpable because just because Bush set it up doesn't mean the Obama administration and a, a government that was largely controlled almost exclusively by the Democratic Party for the first part of, of, of Obama's administration um, didn't have to use the road. There was no need for them to do this, but yet they did. So it, when it comes to looking at our current state of affairs with the United States government, reading emails, inter, you know, collecting data from the cellular phone companies, spying on its own citizens, the installation of the NSA uh, data center, uh, all of these things, you get absolutely equivocal blame between Democrats and Republicans. Now, the next thing I would say to you, the biggest reason that people even have this question is normally when you look for criticism of what Republicans do, you look to Democrats to get it. And if you look for uh, criticism of the Democratic Party, you, you, you see it from the angle of a Republican. So they do criticize each other. And they do point out differences, at least in marketing platform. But, but because of that, because that's where we look for the criticism, you don't see a problem with it if you are either Democrat or Republican. So you'll see... The Democrats condemn the Republicans, let's say, for a Republican stance uh, against a certain social welfare program. And as a Republican, you're like, so? I don't want any more social welfare. But what you won't see is the Democrat acknowledge the hundreds of social welfare programs that exist The Republicans are doing nothing to, to, to repeal or scale down, and in fact are working with Democrats behind the scenes to enlarge, to put greater entrenched, right? And if you're if you are a a Democrat, then you will see something uh, totally different. For instance, so you will see the Republican Party come out and condemn. The Democrats were trying to expand the social welfare program. And since you're like, oh, think of the children, you're like, oh, we have to take care of these people. So then you say, well, that's a valid difference and I support my side. But again, the Democrats won't acknowledge the hundreds of places that the two parties are expanding social welfare on an ongoing basis. How can I prove this? Well, we have to be spending the money on something. So... From 2000 to 2008, George Bush pretty much doubled the national debt. Doubled it. Doubled it. Let me say it one more time. Doubled it. Okay? Now, a lot was made that Barack Obama spent more money than George Bush. That his expansion of government debt was greater in one term than Bush's in two. 
Yes, but it's because Barack Obama is also on track to double the national debt. So when we look at that, you'd say, well, I know. The guy that did good with the debt was was Bill Clinton. Uh, no. Okay, so Bush Sr., no. So Reagan, uh, no. I mean, the way that we determine if a government is getting bigger, is it increasing its debt? If it's increasing its debt, it has to be getting bigger. The money must be being spent on something. So let's look at the history of debt um, since since 1960, and we'll start with the current president. Um, president Barack Obama, in his first term, increased our debt by 44%. Okay? Uh, during his entire administration, President Bush uh, increased our debt by 101%. He doubled it. Barack will double it by the end of his second term. He's right on track to do that. President Bill Clinton added 32% to the U.S. debt. So he actually did the best in, in, the, in the least amount of growth uh, of debt. There, there's reasons for that, though, that, that are beyond you know his, his own withholding of debt. It was more about how good the economy was and how high tax revenues were during a large part of his administration where the debt wasn't necessary to be increased. So the money was still there and the government was still grown. But still, it's a 32% increase in our debt. Uh, President George H.W. Bush did 54% increase to the United States debt, which is on par with doubling it over it if he had made a second term. Ronald Reagan uh, increased our debt by 186%. Jimmy Carter increased our debt by 43%. Gerald Ford, as short a time as he was president, increased our debt by 47%. Richard Nixon increased our debt by 34%. President Lyndon Baines Johnson uh, only increased our uh, spending, our, our debt, by 13%. President John F. Kennedy, 8%. Dwight Eisenhower gave us a 9% increase in debt. Harry Truman gave us a 3% debt increase. Why were those guys so low? Because of World War II spending and how big the spending was for the Great Depression. Because Franklin Delano Roosevelt gave those guys a nice head start by increasing our debt by 1,048%. 1,048%. So we go back for that. Herbert Hoover increased our debt by 33%. I'm just going to go all the way back to the uh, Federal Reserve here if I can find the numbers. Um, Calvin Coolidge increased our debt by 26%. Uh, Warren G. Harding by 7%. And President Woodrow Wilson, who was president the first year that the IRS existed and the Federal Reserve existed, I'm going to say that again. President Woodrow Wilson, who was president the first year that the IRS and Federal Reserve existed, increased our debt by 727%. So when you ask me how they're just as bad as each other, I say when we average their scorecards, we end up with a pretty historic track record that shows us that every president since 1913 and we could keep going back if we wanted to and showing it again, has increased the size and scope of government through the issuance of debt. So it doesn't matter what way the country is being mired in control by government. It's just that it's being mired in control by government. It doesn't matter in what way 
we're, we're ensuring that our grandchildren and their grandchildren pay for what we have today with their futures, it matters that we're doing it. And there's nothing Republicans have ever done. In fact, if I wanted to make a pure case on numbers, if it wasn't for frickin' Roosevelt, and let's, let's, let's just say that guy's farther out, I would tell you that it, historically, in recent history, right up until Barack Obama, Republicans have grown the debt much faster than Democrats. So if you're concerned with the fiscal responsibility of the nation, Republicans are or as bad or mathematically worse than Democrats. So when we what happens though is people get into what what's important to them and they say, well, at least the Republicans are strong on the Second Amendment. Oh really? Oh really? George Bush said, and I quote, if the votes were there. If the votes were there to reinstate the assault weapons ban, I would sign it. Oh, Republicans are strong for the border. They want national security in the border. Really? Wasn't it John McCain that gave us the first really heavy rendition of an amnesty bill? And do Republicans or Democrats really want to solve the immigration issue? Or do they want to look like the champion of the minority? They both want to look, they're both pandering. You want to solve this problem? It's easy. Create a way that people could be in this country for the purpose of working that's easy. That's really easy. And then tell people that are here illegally to go back and use that system and make it really easy. Make it, make it a one day inconvenience. You got to go to Mexico. You got here from there. You can get back. You want to break up families. No, 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 no. You make it really, really easily. You set up an office right there. Come in, fill out your paperwork. Boom. Bam, boom, bam. All right, go on back about your life. But you don't get immediate citizenship, and you don't get to bring all your friends and family with you like the old MCI calling circles. Okay? Well, you're a libertarian. You're supposed to be for open borders. Sure I am. Get rid of all this welfare bullshit, and we can open them up. But that's not what we have. We have a system that is designed to make the illegal immigrant into either a hard-working, oppressed individual or a parasite. That is the two choices a person coming to this country right now is met with. You can be a parasite or you can be hard-working but oppressed and not given the rights of a person who works as hard as you. That's you, you, Do you get that? And who created that system? Democrats? Republicans? Or both? Right now... Right now, the Republican Party is working to improve Obamacare with Democrats quietly so that they can turn around and sell it to you in 2016. Republicans talk about the insolvency of Social Security that we're facing, but they never talk about actually getting rid of it. Again, they, they are propping up the same collapsing, burning building as the Democrats. There's, I'll, I would flip this around to you. What specifically have Republicans done that makes them better than Democrats? What have they repealed? What have they repealed? The only thing that I can see that they've done, that this repealed restrictions, is the way that they've called it deregulation to institute greater regulations to empower pharmaceutical companies and, and, and agricultural companies like Monsanto. Republicans gave you GMO food on your kid's plate. Yay, George Bush. Senior. That all goes back to George Senior. He, he, there's video of him 
at a Monsanto facility saying, come and see me, we're in the deregulation business. Yeah. That's what Republicans gave you. I, I mean, how I could do a whole show. I could do ten shows on shit Republicans have done that's wrong. When it comes to blowing shit up, both sides agree. They may talk a different talk, but both of our parties are totally willing to murder children in foreign countries. Yes, I said it, and that's what it is. When whoever is at a wedding and a president signs an airstrike and says, kill him, and they just say, well, it's collateral damage, and they bomb a wedding, it's murder. It's murder. It's murder. You want me to say it again? If you don't like it, I don't care. It's murder. Oh, but they're the enemy. What if you were the enemy? What What do you think would be our reaction if we were at legitimate war with another country? And one of our people that they most wanted to kill, that we even acknowledged, look, we don't want him dead. We like this guy. Okay? But he is legitimately a combatant. He is a legitimate target in a war. And and that foreign country found out he was going to be at a, a wedding and bombed a wedding and killed American children. Don't you think we would call them murderers? And don't you think you would probably be the first person? They murdered our children. It works both ways. It works both ways. That child in that country is as human as your child. They have as much right to breathe, as much right to live as your child. War should be the last resort for the defense of family, home, and nation. Not the first, the first uh, option for the expansion of economic power. For the expansion of control. And both parties are hawks. Barack Obama came into office, did nothing, and got a freaking peace prize. And continued to bomb countries. Claimed victory for George Bush's victory in Iraq. Called the war over and left thousands and thousands of combatants there. But their contractors... Withdrew the troops on a timeline that was predetermined by the prior organization and blew the shit out of people. And right now, the same crap's going on in Afghanistan. Somebody told you before he was elected, believe the exact words I said, Barack Obama will escalate the war in Afghanistan. He thinks the war in Afghanistan is a great idea. And I got hate mail. You don't know. You don't understand. We have to do something different. How's it working out for you? How much different has it been? How much different has it been? Now, I'm not saying that if you give complete control to one side or the other, that it won't get worse. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying that at all. I think that the worst thing that could happen to this country is 60-plus senators from one political party Dominant control of the House of Representatives from one political party and a president from one political party. I don't care which side it is. And I'm damn well telling you it could very well happen in 2016 and it could be under Republicans and they will do as much harm as the Democrats would if they took over. They'll do it. 
It'll just look different. But many things will be similar. Larger government, greater intrusion on the rights of individual people, a continued policy that it's okay to murder people in other countries, a continued policy that if you call somebody a terrorist, the Constitution doesn't apply to them anymore, a continued policy of leading the United States forward into economic oblivion, a continued class warfare structure. Republicans accuse Democrats of class warfare. See, this is where it gets confusing. They're not wrong. They just do it too. They just do it too. They structure their argument differently. See, the Democrats say, oh, look, the rich people don't care about the poor people. And the Republicans say, you are engaging in class warfare. These are hardworking Americans. They care. They just only have so much to give, and you've taken enough from them already. On the surface, that sounds like good marketing, but what the underlying subliminal tone is, they want to take your money, hardworking middle America. They want to take it and give it to people that don't work. They both use class warfare. I got an idea. How about you don't get to take anybody's money? How about you don't get to take anybody's money? How about you have to build an economy, you have to build a nation that works well enough that you can earn enough revenues throughout the most sales taxation so that you can function as a government. And whatever you can't pay for, you don't get to do. I don't know. That sounds like a good idea to me. Country ran pretty much that way for a long time, by the way. Again, the income tax did not exist until 1913. Somehow we got along. I got off on a tangent. I'm sorry. This made this show go longer than it should have, but hopefully that gives you some answers. And um, these are things I thought I've been saying all along. Let's take another call. Hi, Jack. I just want to get your opinion on something. Uh, this actually is this question is actually for my father. Um, I was wondering if if you right now if you were 60 years old and you had no debt and owned your own property and you had fifty thousand dollars in a traditional IRA, uh, what would you do with the money right now? Um, love to hear your thoughts. Thanks. Bye. Okay, um, I gotta give a simple answer here, but it's complex because there's a lot of things I don't know, like current employment status, what's his current income status, what's his current tax bracket, etc. Um, here's the deal though. Number one, this is not a time to be playing risky with the money. Money needs to either be cash, cash equivalencies, or really good, solid, uh, proven stocks, uh, stocks that, that held their value through the recession, stocks like I'm holding. Um, and, and that's, that's it. Uh, no risk plays at 60. You, you don't, uh, unless there's a bunch of other money somewhere I don't know about. Um, then the desires of the individual. What does your dad want? Does he want the money out of there or does he find with the money in there? With a traditional IRA, every distribution counts as taxable income. Now that income is going to get added onto the income that you have from other sources. So if he's still working, And taking a distribution pushes him into a higher tax bracket. It can cost him higher taxes, not just on the income he's extracting, but on the totality of his income. So that's something you kind of have to look at with your CPA and say, how if you want the money out, how much can I take a year before I go into adverse tax consequences? And if you want the money out, I would take right up to that threshold every year until the money's out, and you can take it and then do whatever you want to with it. You can have the money outside the IRA. I wouldn't worry about the government taking that IRA. I think that the stuff that's sitting around in a 60-year-old's account that's been around that long, 
Um, if they do something with IRAs and try to take over pension programs and stuff like that, they're going to push us into it, and they're going to have to grandfather old accounts, and they'll try to make a case to you of why you would want to put your account into some other form or format. Okay, So I, I don't think they're going to come take it away from you. So I think it really has to do how much money does he make, how much money does he have, what's his total retirement plan. But I, So I'm not really sure what you're asking. Are you asking me when I get the money out? Well, you're going to pay a huge tax hit on it. right? So let's say that he has a $50,000 income from other sources. He takes a $50,000 distribution. You've got a $100,000 income. You're getting up an upper tax bracket status. right? Um, so if he's making a good income, let's say he makes $120,000 a year right now, which he'd probably have a bigger IRA than 50 k if he did, but let's just say he does then taking a dollar out, it's going to be taxed near the top rate. Not quite, but near, because there's all other types of deductions and stuff like that. So it's kind of the thing that you sit down with your CPA and you look at your prior tax years, your most recent three tax returns, and say, how much more income could I have had before I went to a higher tax rate? And, and take no more than that amount of distribution, unless it's going to put you up like two points and you're okay with it. Know what you're doing and why you're doing it. Is there any reason not to just leave the money there? No, I, I have no problem if he wants to leave the money in an IRA at this point, especially uh, at his place in life and things like that. I would only take distributions if you need them or you know why you're taking them, and I would try to minimize distributions to minimize tax consequences. If he's going to actually retire five years from now and his income is going to go way down, it makes sense to stave off the distributions until that point. Okay, so that's... That's the best I can do with the information that you gave me. If you're asking me what I would buy inside that IRA, I don't know. That's, that's a question for you and your financial liar, I mean advisor, to discuss. It, it has a lot to do with how much does he have in other assets. Is he sitting on a 401k that's still at his company where he's still working with $2 million in it? Or has he got a 401k in his current company that he works for with 50 bucks in it? Or does he have no 401k at all? What's his other assets? How much does he have in savings? I mean, this is something you sit down with your financial planner to discuss. It's not something that I can give you a direct answer to. Other than, again, looking at the tax consequences of the, dist consequences of the distribution and trying to structure them in such a way that they do the least amount of damage in having to give money to Uncle Scam. Let's take another one. Hi, Jack. Jim Henderson here from Connecticut. I'm currently reading a book called The Eagle Has Crashed by Ted Laxanon, if that's the way he pronounced his last name. And although this book is fiction, taking place in the year 2029-2030, it seems to me that it would, might actually be based on more fact than fiction because of what the book portrays going on behind the scenes. My question to you is, if you have read this, what are your thoughts on the book and how realistic do you think it is or will be in 15 years. I appreciate everything you do, and keep up the good work. Well, it's a pretty good read. It's a pretty good book. Uh, Ted is actually a listener of the Survival Podcast, and he's been on the air. Uh, I think it was episode 814 of the Survival Podcast. I'll put a link in today's show notes so you can actually listen to that interview with Ted. Uh, that was I've looked it up now. Yes, it was 814, January 5th, 2012, so about two years and a couple months ago, uh, Ted was on the air. I had not heard of him until he applied to be a guest, and I actually read his book in full after uh, the show uh, aired. Uh, I found a lot of it to be really, really believable. 
Um, the fact that sooner or later we would come to a point where we can't just keep printing money, uh, the government would actually seize, just like we were talking about, uh, people's retirement accounts. But the way they did it in the Eagle has crashed, they, they did a, a property tax on your retirement. They basically said, like, okay, everybody's retirement account is getting taxed like 15% right now. We're just taking the money. Um, the, the problem with that, and it didn't really get expo explored in the book, is you can't just do that because you're liquidating 15% of people's accounts. Most of them are in the stock market. So you're taking billions of dollars out of the market in one day. So the only way that that would work, and maybe that was what he had in mind, is the government would actually seize those assets and not actually trade the stocks. So they put them on their balance sheet to make themselves whole because you can't just dump and liquidate the cash to spend the money. See, that's that's the trap of the retirement accounts. That's why what they're really trying to do is push more and more investor money into U.S. debt instead of just seize the money. Or they could tax the distributions higher one because you're liquidating anyway, and they're going to tax that. You see what I mean? They can't just push you out. So that was there was stuff on unions in there that I, I, I saw as being very realistic Uh, the way the guy, the one character in the story basically has run his business for years, uh, can't deal with union labor anymore, can't make any money, can't fulfill his contracts, and basically says he's going to operate outside the system. They tell him he can't. He's going to open a new company and stay, you know, under a new name. They, they won't let him do it. Um, decides he's going to move to a new state, but it's, it's cost prohibitive, so he just gives up his business. Uh, that, that's, that's happening all the time right now. The violence over that, Union thugs firebombing stuff because of conflicts like I just described. Absolutely. Um, people not getting their Social Security checks. The eh, uh, day they can't give you a Social Security check, we've got a totally different world. And I think that they can always give you the check. They just can't guarantee the value of the check. So the, the person that's getting $1,500 bucks will get a $1,500 check. I, I don't think it'll, it won't show up. It'll just be worth you know $150. That's the way that's going to play out. Some of it that I found unrealistic that's in all of these novels, the, the, the battles, right? The big you know, firefight at the state park. I just thought that was, it was fun to read, you know, but it wasn't realistic. It wasn't realistic at all. It, uh, the, the, the occurrences in it are certainly could happen. Uh, the, there was an old man farmer in there who kills a couple guys and buries them with a backhoe because they were trying to make them use registered seed. That's that's probably going to happen sooner or later. Uh, the U.S. breaking up into a, a basically civil war, certain states seceding from the Union, Texas leading the charge. Maybe. I don't know. I mean, as a Texan, you know, I want to think that my state is liberty-minded and liberty-oriented. And compared to, compared to California and New York, we are. We're still a police state. Texas is still a police state. It's a pretty bad one, in fact. In fact, we mislead ourselves here by looking to California, Illinois, Massachusetts, New Jersey, right, Ohio, Maryland, and going, see how bad it is there? We're not that bad. But it's the same thing I've said about America. We say we're the freest nation in the world. I don't know that we are, but even if we are, it doesn't mean we're free enough. Even if Texas is high on the list of total liberties in the country, and I think we lack a lot on social liberties, by the way. Um, even if we're high, it doesn't mean we're where we should be. It doesn't mean we're moving in the right direction. So it, it, it's it, often we mislead ourselves with stuff like this, and we say, okay, 
Um, yeah, I'm 50 grand in debt, but the average American is $200,000 in debt, so I'm not that bad. Those numbers aren't real. They're just made up. So let's say I'm $50,000 in debt, but my five, five closest neighbors are $200,000 each, so I'm not that bad. You have a huge problem just because your problem's not as big as theirs. So when I read stuff like that, Texas taking the lead, um, I don't want to give away too much of the author's story. So I'll say the interviews linked in today's show notes, I do think a lot of it is plausible. Uh, a lot of it is plausible but improbable. A lot of it is so plausible that it very well will likely be newsprint in the future or news media in the future. Um, the numbers in it are based on fact. The numbers in it, the timelines, uh, the inability of the nation to service this debt, all of that are based on fact. The conclusions as to where that leads are where we go off into the world of, you know, uh, lyrical license. Anyway, I think it's a good book. It'd be something to add to your bookshelves. Uh, and you, you might want to listen to the interview with the author to get a better feel for it before you make that decision for yourself. Uh, now I have for you, um, John Pugliano has kind of taken the reins here and has started to put together little pieces for us each week. So there's not a, really a question here, just John picking something topical and letting you guys know about it from a financial perspective. Hello, this is John Pugliano from Investable Wealth, a member of the Expert Council. I have a market update for you, and I want to focus on the activities of Coca-Cola. Coca-Cola's earnings report this week have been pretty much characteristic of the market. If you saw the headlines, they, in big, big bold letters, said, Coca-Cola beats estimates. And those headlines must have worked because two days after those announcements, the stock is up 4.8%. Now, if you dig down into the numbers, you'll find out that, yes, Coca-Cola did beat estimates, but Coca-Cola did not beat earnings or beat revenue. In fact, the revenue, their overall sales, were down 4% for the first quarter. Their earnings were likewise down 4% for the first quarter. Now, if the earnings and the revenue were both down, and, in fact, if the company is projecting that, that uh, earnings will be flat for the rest of the year, Why on earth would their stock have gone up 4.8%? Why on earth would they be selling it at 20 times earnings multiple? Well, the simple answer is that they pulled the same shenanigans that they and many other big companies have been doing for the last three or four years, and that's a stock buyback program. Now, these buyback programs are facilitated by the artificially low interest rates that the Federal Reserve has had in the marketplace since the recession began. Now, this is nothing new, and that's what concerns me. It's just it's been going on for so long. We're going, on, we're going into our sixth year of a bull market that's been driven by these low interest rates and by these uh, financial accounting. I don't really call them gimmicks, but they're, they're definitely um, sleight of hand that make it look like profits are up when they're actually not. I'm not opposed to making money on these things, but I just think after we've done it for five years, the game's getting very old, and eventually it's going to come to an end. I don't want to be the guy that's left holding the bag. Some other things that concern me is that Charles Schwab, now they announced earnings this week, and their earnings were fantastic. Um, their revenue was up 15%. Their earnings were actually up uh, an unbelievable 60% for the quarter, and they have uh, expected earnings for the year to go up 23%. The thing that's concerning about that is that Charles Schwab is a discount broker. They cater to the retail investor. We know that historically the retail investor on Wall Street, they're called the dumb money. Uh, these are the guys that always get in <clears throat> at the end of a rally and 
you know, perhaps this is signaling a market top. I have no way of knowing. No one else does either. I would just urge you, urge you to be very cautious and invest your money wisely. This is John Pugliano from Investable Wealth with another market update. I, I think John's dead on, and uh, this is nothing new, and it's something that all uh, after the TARP bailouts and, and the, the financial bailouts, financial institution bailouts, and then along the way we had QE1, 2, and then QE Infinity, especially during the QE Infinity um, $85 billion dollars a month being pumped into the banks and financial institutions, buying up mortgage-backed securities. The banks have been taking that money and doing a lot of things with it, and one major thing that they've done is buying their own stock to create the illusion of greater earnings per shareholder by buying up the shares and dissolving them. Somebody told you about that during a video series called Why QE3 Will Work that was put out quite a long time ago. I'm not saying who it is, but it might be Jack Spierko. And uh, that was one of the things I, I pointed out as key to what QE3 was about. So all you're seeing is this tactic now being used by another company. Good stuff from John. Let's take another question from the audience. Hey, Jack. Jake Robinson from Murfreesboro, Tennessee, also known as Prepper Survivor on Zello. My question is about the Bundy Ranch event. Do you think this is a microcosm of things to come as it relates to pressure points from what's considered, maybe considered oppressive government or tyranny from government and people standing up to it. Uh, there's a lot of different ways you can go with this story. It looks like the Bundy, uh, uh, that Clive and Bundy had, uh, was exempted from, from paying the uh, federal fees for, for his cattle and that he's been fighting it for 20 years or whatever and it's a state rights issue. But then you had grassroots supporters coming out, then militia, armed militiamen showing up, and then the BLM, after tasing people and arresting people, and with dogs, etc., they back down, quote-unquote. There's also a blog post out there that says that this was tactical. This was a tactical retreat in order to hoodwink, quote-unquote, the folks. Uh, in the meantime, they had drones flying, Re, uh, assessing uh, weapons and resources that the militia people may have, that they're going to use this as a, a false flag, as a way to promote gun control, etc., which I don't doubt they would do. But looking at it from a 50,000-foot view, it just seems like, man, this has a lot of different uh, directions it could go in. Uh, I don't like somebody getting the, the federal government coming in and controlling property and things of that nature. On the other hand, uh, did you do you think that the militiamen showing up armed was smart, and, or do you think this is just the time, sign of the times and things? This is what, what what's going to happen if you continue to put pressure on the liberty and the freedoms of people uh, that people cherish. Anyway, what, what's your thought process? I'm not buying into conspiracy theories, but it sure is an interesting event, and it sure has some interesting. Uh, Um, eventualities as well. Thanks, Jack. Keep up the great work. All right. In the show notes, I put, okay, I'll say something about the Buddy Ranch exclamation point because I've gotten so much on this and uh, I get a call on it, so I'll say some things on it. Here's the truth. I think it's a giant mess. I don't think it's as cut and dry as people in the liberty movement want it to be. I don't think Cliven Bundy is the next uh, hero of the country. 
Um, I do think there are problems with federal control of lands within the states, federal lands within the states. But I think that if the state has acknowledged that control, the state of Nevada has acknowledged this control. The, the problem here really should be with the state of Nevada. And the state of Nevada in its constitution states that federal authority has, the, the federal union has authority. Let me read to you from This is from the Nevada State Constitution. Whensoever any portion of the states or people thereof attempt to secede from the federal union or forcibly resist the execution of its laws, the federal government may, by warrant of the Constitution, employ armed force in compelling, uh, compelling obedience to its authority. I'm not saying that's a good thing, but it's in the Nevada Constitution. That's from the, again, that's from the Nevada Constitution. Nevada has not, in my understanding, contested the control of these lands by the federal government. Nevada has abdicated control. Um, it, it's not like this Bundy characters out there with the Nevada state militia under the authority of the, the state governor saying, hey, look, you guys don't have authority here. Now, this gets to a totally different question. Should the federal government be able to control lands federally within the state of Nevada at all? My feeling is no. No, it should not. There should be no federal control of lands within the states. All lands within the borders of the state should be controlled by the state itself. But that's not the way it is. Now, this is not a guy who was doing his thing, minding his own business, grazing cattle like he always has done, And didn't know, and one day they just showed up and said, hey, give us some money. This has been going on for 20 years. For 20 years, he's been grazing on these lands, racking up these fees nobly. The government's attempted to collect the money, and he's told them no. And after 20 years, they're like, well, you're going to pay. And, and frankly, it's amazing to me that this went on this long. And there's this huge story about his family came there in the 1870s, and land was free grazing for all. Well, it ain't that way anymore. This isn't how you change a situation by just grazing land on land that you know incurs a fee and refusing to pay it. At least not by yourself. Now, if this was going to work, you'd have to get about 20,000 ranchers out there and all of them say no. And all of them go to the state of Nevada and go, no, we're not doing this. Get your shit together and tell those people that this is our land, not theirs. And if there's going to be a fee, we'll pay you, not them. That's not what's going on. And I don't know all the details and, and everything, so don't try to get into a big debate on this. And again, I'm not saying the federal government should be able to charge a grazing fee to a rancher in Nevada. I'm saying they, they do. And that's, see, here's the thing, that's the conditions going in. When you put your animals on that land, you know very well what you're doing. Now, the bigger lesson here is things like militiamen showing up and conflict and people getting really heated about this. If everything I just said is true, why are people coming to this guy's aid? Why are people getting so lathered up into this? This is where we're getting into the dangerous thing. People are pissed. People have had enough with the government. People are at a point now where they're looking for a reason to rebel. They're looking for a cause to endorse. And it gets very dangerous when you start getting to places where maybe it's a cause we shouldn't be behind. And people are showing up anyway. And in this case, at least it's probably a decent guy trying to earn a decent living that I think's made some poor decisions about how to do it. But I can understand why you'd want to back this guy, but 
This is how you end up with banana republics. This is where you get a guy one day rising up against authority that people back that they shouldn't. And in our country, it'll probably be done through elections. And we could end up electing somebody that make freaking George Bush look like the Pope and uh, Barack Obama look like Gandhi, at least the historical representation of Gandhi, because he was kind of a dick, by the way. Um, you can I'm not going to elaborate on that. You can look it up on Stefan Molyneux's YouTube channel if you want to know why Gandhi is not the, the wonderful person that you've been told that he is. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I just think that we... This is more of a, of a prelude to how bad things can get because of how frustrated people are. I've been guilty of it myself. I've overreacted to, to oppression by government in certain areas where it's clear that it's nowhere near as bad as what they're doing everywhere else. It just hits you at the wrong time in the wrong place. And there's a point at which people get sick of it. They get tired of the government saying what you can and can't do. They're, they're, they're fed up. This is more of a hot spot showing you the underlying current of dissatisfaction in our country and how close to the boiling point we are at certain points. And this is where we talked about the eagle has crashed with a civil war. This is where it could happen. And God help us if it does. During the last civil war, cannons and mini balls were how we took lives in combat. Today, the state of Texas' National Guard has more firepower than Nazi Germany did in World War II. Total destructive capability. The state of Texas has more total destructive capability. People say, well, if there's a civil war, how would you fight against the government? It wouldn't be a war against the government. It would be a war of governments. That's what people don't understand about civil wars. Civil wars are generally wars of governments. Two sides. Fighting for control. In fact, in that way, our first civil war in this country wasn't a civil war. Because it wasn't a fight for control. The southern states tried to leave. They didn't try to control the northern states. They didn't try to take over. Just try to walk away. You can debate the good and the bad of that all you want to. That's the facts. That's what, that's what happened. There was, the, the, the Confederacy did not try to control New York State or Pennsylvania. They just tried to leave the Union. A civil war is where people fight for control. And I guess in that case it was a civil war because the Union fought for control of the South. So technically that would still be a civil war. But that's what this is showing you. That there are people that are absolutely at their limit with government intrusion. And how dumb is government and how far will it push and how far will it go. And some people, kind of what Jake was alluding to there, think that the government's willing to push that far because if they can create little hot pockets where people snap their gasket and violence erupts they can use it as an excuse for greater oppression greater control but there's a problem with that it's like going around and poking a beehive and saying see look bees are dangerous well in this case it's like poking a beehive that has a bee internet And when you piss off these bees here, you piss off ten beehives around them. And then when you go over here and poke this beehive to get another hot spot, you piss off another ten beehives. And it's exponential, so when you poke the next one, you get ten times ten or a hundred. And if you poke the next one, you get a hundred times a hundred. 
And it keeps building that way to where the whole damn mess goes up. Because people are, people are close to snapping in a lot of places. People are tired of it. They're tired of an oppressive government. They're tired of an intrusive government. They're tired of having what they work for taken. People are just tired of it. And that's what Bundy Ranch shows me. People going, you know what, if this guy wants to graze his cows out there, fine. Well, here's the facts. I don't give a damn about the facts anymore. I'm just tired of it. I think that's the attitude of support. Damn the facts. I'm just tired of the government with all their shit. They shouldn't be here. Well, there's a process to change that through your state. And I think the attitude is the damn state won't do it. The politicians will pander to it and talk about what a good guy Bundy is, but they're not doing shit. They're not doing anything. They're not doing anything to remove federal control of Nevada line, so we'll do it. Because I'm tired of it. I'm not saying whether it's right or wrong. I'm saying that's what it is. And it's like if I'm talking into a microphone on a large audio system and I get too close to the microphone and I've got other electronic devices going on and I'm wearing a lapel mic at the same time, I'll get that feedback loop. The people of this country are starting to feel, because it's not a democracy, it's an oligarchy, they're starting to feel that their voice is in a feedback loop, that they can't be heard. That what they say doesn't matter. That their government doesn't listen to them. The scary part is they're right. And the scarier part is, once people feel that way for so long, sooner or later, they stop giving a shit what government wants. And if you don't think the streets of this country can erupt into violence then you haven't paid attention to the world around you recently. Like what's going on in the Ukraine? Well, we're responsible for that comes from one side, and it's Russia comes from the other side, and the truth is they both are. We're agitating it. Russia's agitating it. We're saber-rattling with each other like a bunch of dumbasses back in a Cold War. Doesn't matter why. It just matters that it happens, and it's happening It's happened in Greece, France, Italy. Don't think it can't happen here. And when it does, the dangerous part, and this is why you can't be coaxed into it, you will empower the enemy. The enemy is the state here. This is what, this is what the people of this country don't understand. That my friend Les, who's from Poland, says that all the people in Poland understood this before he left in the 80s. The government was the enemy. The government was the oppressor. The government was the problem. We've been led to believe the other guy's side of the government is the problem. We haven't coalesced. And the problem is, if we don't get there first, and if we get to this, I can't take it anymore mode before we understand it's the totality of government that is the problem, as long as it's the other guy's government that's a problem, then you get into a faction style of violence. And it's exactly what the people in power want. If you have riots in Dallas tomorrow morning, the people that want greater control of the American people will come out with somber eyes and tell you how horrible it is and how they're doing everything they can and they want peace restored. 
and they'll practically be doing head spins with giddiness at the new laws that they'll be able to enact because of it. That's what Bundy Ranch means to me. I don't know who's absolutely right or wrong here, but I do know what the symptoms of the patient are telling me. People are fed up, and they're willing to go to extremes without taking in all the facts first because they're sick and tired of oppression. They're sick and tired of a government that doesn't listen. They're sick and tired of their voice not mattering, and they're sick and tired of seeing their fellow countrymen oppressed. And they may be riding the wrong horse in this one. I don't know. But it doesn't matter. The symptoms indicate the same problem. And it's really a scary problem. Let's take another call. Jack, I'm looking for the safest way to store gasoline in my apartment. So I'm looking to get into a generator. However, with generator, to my understanding, you need gas to run a generator. Now, I don't, I'm just trying to think of a safe way to put the gas and keep it stored in my apartment for the simple fact that only place I think we have would be on the patio, but in the problem on the patio in the storage unit, we have the water heater there. I don't know if that would cause any issues. And also, I don't know if leaving it indoors with us, maybe the fumes will affect us or anything like that be detrimental to our health. So any help or advice you got, really appreciate it, Jack. Keep doing what you're doing. I love the show. All right? You have a good one. Hope to hear from you. As simple as this is going to sound, what you want then is a gas can. Um, specifically, I tell you, if you want safety uh, at the highest level for your gasoline, a, a actual NATO jerry can, you can get them from Old Grouch Military Surplus. You can get them from other places, too. I just know that if you get one from Old Grouch, you're getting uh, the original, actual military spec uh, jerry can, and that some of the aftermarket ones have had problems with seams rusting on the inside and corroding on the inside. Um, those are meant to be attached to the back of a vehicle in a rack and go bouncing all over the damn place and not leak and not 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 cause any problems. Um, I I would also tell you that you could probably store that gas can out on your patio, and if the storage space out there isn't really, like you said, there's a water heater in there, um, you know, gas vapors and electronics don't really work out very well, but uh, it, it would be possible to uh, store that can out on the patio itself and just simply cover it with something or hide it with something, put some kind of a big planter over it if you're, if you're really worried about that. It shouldn't be a problem. Because the can should not leak any vapor. But a lot of things shouldn't happen and do. Um, and, and gas vapor is far more volatile than gas itself. And it's far more likely you'd have a big problem if something went wrong. Or if the, um, if the water heater itself had a malfunction, somehow caught the storage facility on fire, then you're fueling it with 5 or 10 gallons of gas. Um, but a gas can is probably your best choice. Um, though it... It's kind of obvious what it is when you're carrying it up there, and it might have something to do with apartment leases and what you're allowed to have or whatever. But that would be your best bet, a NATO gas can, um, a regular gas can. Stephen Harris would tell you you use one of those 15-gallon barrels uh, for water because they're HDPE, which is the same thing gas cans are made out of. It's pretty big and pretty heavy and pretty bulky to be carrying up the stairs of an apartment. Um, another option would be if you have any type of off-site storage to store your gasoline off-site. 
Uh, you might have to go get it during an outage, but it's probably not going to be a problem. You're also probably not going to be running a very large generator, so you don't need that much gasoline. Um, if you're using something like a, a you know a, a 2K Honda that sips gas, five gallons goes a long way. Uh, so 10 gallons goes a really long way. So I wouldn't try to store too much gasoline in an apartment. Uh, but that's that would be my approach. The the most bulletproof thing I can recommend from a safety security standpoint is a mil spec NATO jerry can, five gallons, and make sure you get the nozzle to go with it. Um, or use Steve's trick as well. And I love Steve's trick, by the way. He gets the, the pump ball for an outboard motor and rubber tubing so that you can make a siphon. So you put the tube in the can, you put the can at elevated position over wherever the fuel's going into, and you pump the ball a few times, and that starts a siphon, and the fuel just goes straight in. Uh, it's really, really convenient, something that I, I really appreciate that I've learned from Steve. Uh, let's take another call. Hey, Jack, this is Kurt from Robbinsdale, Minnesota. Love this show. Quick question on mobile phone numbers. I was, I was, I'm in a new area code, and I've been in this area code for 10 years. My phone is from when I was down in college. Since everyone, including my wife, has my phone number memorized, is it smart to change my phone number to the new area code or the code I've been in for, for 10 years? Most people have free long distance these days, so I didn't think it really mattered, but maybe for convenience, bring it to the area code that I live in. But just wanted your thoughts on that from a security basis of changing the number that most people that are important to me already have memorized. Thanks, Jack. Shortest, quickest, easiest answer of the show. Go to Google Voice and get yourself a Google number in the area code that you want to have. It will be free. Forward that number to your existing cell phone. Um, for anybody that you'd want to give a local number to, give them the Google Voice number and keep your old number. And when people call either number, it'll ring to your cell phone. It's that simple. It's free. It's quick. It's easy. There's a lot of other great features that Google Voice offers. But for your individual situation... There you go. Let's take another call. Hi, Jack. My question is about investing money as a gift for the future. I have a new baby nephew, and I would like something to set aside a small amount of money each month for his use in the future. My uncle did this for me and my brother, and he did it by buying U.S. savings bonds and sending them to us each month. I'm not sure that savings bonds are the best choice now, given our, the future and everything. So I wanted to get your take on this idea. Do you think silver or gold would be a better choice? Thanks for your help. Um, if you hadn't asked, I would have said silver. And I would say silver over gold, and I'll tell you why. You said you want to buy it in small amounts on kind of a monthly basis. Okay, so the smaller we fractionalize precious metals in general, the higher premium we pay on it. So... It is a lot more expensive to buy an ounce of gold by buying 10 one-tenth ounces than it is to just buy an ounce of gold. But yet an ounce of gold is not something I would call a small-dollar purchase. Uh, an ounce of silver, as of today, is trading just under 20 bucks. Uh, a silver eagle from JM Bullion is trading at about $22, meaning if you wanted to put up about $50 worth of value a, a month for, for your, your new child, uh, you could buy two silver eagles is $44 plus some shipping. Or with small quantity and purchasing often, I would tell you to find a local shop. I think the sponsors like JM, that's good when you're buying 10 ounces or more. 
uh, and you're, you're buying, you know, a few times a year and you're buying larger quantities, a couple hundred, three hundred dollars. The shipping is, 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 is not a big deal, uh, on, on that level of a purchase and the percentage of the whole. When you're buying one coin or two coins, shipping's kind of expensive unless you're buying something special you want that only they have. So, uh, I would look at that. Or if we look at JM and they are a sponsor, so I'm giving them a little bit of, uh, a little bit of extra exposure here right now. If uh, if I look at uh, silver rounds um, and and just a generic silver round, what are we going to pay uh, for a one ounce silver round? About twenty dollars, just barely over spot, less than a buck over spot on the silver rounds as of today. So that's a very affordable way. Um, it also lets you do something that's kind of cool. So I was looking at silver eagles. Uh, now I'm looking at Sunshine Minting, OPM, uh, Buffalo Silver Rounds, uh, Walking Liberty, St. Gaudens Clones, uh, Indian Heads. There's all different types of silver coins that sell for about the, the, the same. And then, you know, um, 10th ounce get really expensive, uh, comparative, but they have half ounce rounds um, on Jam Bullion right now for like 11 bucks. So that's another option is some half ounces in there. Uh, so you got $22 versus $20 on a generic round. So that's not that big a premium. That's a, you know, it's $2 premium on an ounce. Um, it's not something I would invest in large quantities in. But my point is that if I was putting together this, this savings of value, this store of value for a child, and I know that they're not going to receive this until they're at least 18 years old. I'm not going to give them this when they're six. I know I'm in a long-term value store. Uh, precious metals fits good. It fits really good. It will outperform bonds. There's just no doubt about that. But I also want you to think about the message to that child when they're 18, 20 years old. And having all of these different coins, a lot of silver eagles, because they're probably your best premium silver investment, uh, and your generic rounds of stuff in a beautiful box. And I put this away for you. Doesn't it say more about how you value them than here's some bonds, here's some cash, here's a bank account number? And doesn't don't you think that that, that child at that age, where there, you have this compulsion when you're young, I got money, let's go spend it, is going to be a lot more likely to say, wow, I need to keep this for the rest of my life and maybe give it to my son someday. And maybe I need to add to this store of value. Because we know that the plan for our money over the next 18 years is for it to become worth less than it is today. It's called inflation. It's plan. It's part of the system. So I'm not saying to do silver because I think that the, uh, the the currency will explode and there'll be nothing left and the only thing that'll be worth money will be a, 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 a wheelbarrow of potatoes, silver and gold, all right, and bullets and band-aids. I'm not saying that. Saying that could happen, gold and silver are good contingency. But for long-term investing, especially in small increments over time, it's hard to beat silver. It is really, really hard to beat silver. And you can you can do things. You know, if you're going to put fifty bucks aside a month, you can do things like go out and get some you know nice condition silver quarters. And you can build this as the child gets older. You can start to say, this is yours. This is yours. I've been, I, you don't give it to them when they're 10, right? But I've been building this for you for six, seven, eight years. Whenever that kid's old enough, you think to start sharing, let's go through this and talk about all these things 
that I've been putting aside for you. And then you can start saying, this month, this is what we're saving for you. And as that child starts to get an allowance, you can together select. I want to get this, and that's a little more than you put away for me every month. But here's part of my allowance. You can start co-managing that collection. And you can look at bars. And you can create this diverse silver portfolio with different fractions and components in it. You might say, you know what, maybe it's good to have a large store of value in silver, so we'll just not buy any silver for the next five months. We'll put that money away and we'll buy a big old five-ounce bar. We'll do it for, you know, maybe one year. We'll pick a year to do a couple 10-ounce bars. We'll do a little extra, whatever it is. Or two five-ounce bars. And, 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 and creating that diverse portfolio, to me, as a parent, says to a child, I valued you so much, and I knew that your value as a person would increase as you grew and learned and developed compassion and developed knowledge and developed skills. I knew that you would grow in value as a being. So I put something away for you that I knew would grow in value just like you. Not money. I put up a store of value for you. And I think that if we all did that for our children, we could change the way we think about money in a generation. In one generation, that simple activity, and this is why I love silver, I think anybody could do this. Well, I can't afford to buy two coins a month. Can you afford one for your kid? No. I mean, some people can't. I was just told recently that I'm out of touch Because I said that if you had $2,000 to invest, it was insignificant. And they said that $2,000 is not insignificant to many people. I never said that $2,000 was insignificant as a sum of money. I said it was insignificant as an investment. It's too much risk for too little return. You, you put it somewhere safe if that's all you have. So I get that some people would go, I, no, I can't afford $40 a month. No, I can't afford $20 a month in savings for, for, my, for my new baby. I have, and I have three babies. Buy them one a quarter. Buy them one a quarter. It adds up. Five years, that's 20 pieces of silver. And you'll probably, over the time, be able to figure out how to do more. But in seven years, that's 28 pieces of silver. Now you're sitting down with a seven-year-old kid going through 28 different pieces of silver that you individually selected. Hell, make notes. I bought this one when you were just born. This is what I was thinking when I bought it. I bought this one when you were three months old. You're holding your head up, and everybody thought that was cool. Bought this one when you were five. You're just getting ready to start kindergarten. I remember when you got your shots, how upset you were. Bought this one when you were seven. When you first were getting ready to play t-ball. Cool, huh? Do it with money, I dare you. Money doesn't have the lasting value. It doesn't have a sentimental attachment. It doesn't have the feel. It can't compare. For small dollar, long-term savings, silver is the way to go. And with that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Sometimes we forget we are.
there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, when we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way. Shut is you.